Ciao. Ciao. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. <laughs> Ciao, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Jalo Chow Chow podcast, the all Jalo show here on the interwebs, as they used to call them um, back when people thought that that was a funny thing to say, but it's not <laughs> funny anymore. I still call it that. Do you call it that too? Yeah, okay. every now and then, just to be uh, ironically dorky. <laughs> My name is Chris, and my website is called thejaloscore.com, and please go to it whenever you can and check it out. Um, it is the thing that I have done for the world as it relates to Jalo. It's kind of like my, what do you call that, the magnum opus? Is that what you would call it? <laughs> I'd call it your gift to humanity. Why be humble? <laughs> And with me, as you've already heard, is my good buddy, Al, from Italy. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing well. And uh, this is a random Thursday afternoon, afternoon for me, and evening, or night, actually, for Al over there in Italy. It's 9 o'clock his time, 3 o'clock my time, a random Thursday. We decided to get together and talk about this wonderful film called The Murder Clinic, from 1966, uh, we'll call it a gothic giallo, I think that's fair to say. I think that's pretty close, yeah. I have a little something that relates to a topic we discussed a couple episodes ago. Oh, uh, great. Do tell. Do minor tell. update. We had talked about chat GPT, and you did the bit where you asked it about giallo chow chow. Since then, I've tried, well... Shortly after that, I tried to get on ChatGPT, but it wouldn't let me create an account because it said the servers were busy, so I kind of forgot about it for a while. A couple weeks later, I tried it again, and I found out that in Italy, ChatGPT has been blocked. Ah. So. Interesting. I will apparently not be able to get on ChatGPT at all. 
And I was a little disappointed because I was going to ask it, who in northeastern Italy is the coolest half Italian, half American podcaster of Jollo films? <laughs> and now I apparently will never know. And uh, that leaves me feeling a little insecure. <laughs> I could ask it if you want me to. Uh, no. <laughs> 50 years ago, I wouldn't believe I'm doing anything that we're doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> Talking across the planet, basically for free, about movies that were never meant to be watched once they left the theaters. <laughs> 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 and then releasing it to hundreds of people every month all over the planet to listen to. Without having to pay any money for distribution. Right. And it's all free. You don't have to carry boxes full of stuff to the post office or anything like that. Now, as far as our podcast goes, I would like to say that we've had a little bit of an uptick in downloads. The episode that we did on The Possessed is getting close to 500 downloads, which means that people are still discovering it or going back to it, which is great. Right. Um Death on the Four poster is almost at 300, but the Embalmer is at 368 at the moment. Anyway, yeah, I did see that you had posted something about um, dolphins being sighted in Venice after the pandemic or during the pandemic. Yeah. So, which is pretty cool. Yeah. What was interesting, well, for me about that was... You know, every episode we do, I try to post something in the group that's kind of related to the episode, just so I could, uh, I don't know, have some kind of contact with the listeners besides just talking here. Right. And I couldn't really think of anything for, uh, for the embalmer, but I remembered that I talked about the dolphins. So I thought, well, I'll just post a picture of, you know, the dolphins in Venice because I'd heard about it and there must be a picture on the Internet somewhere. And I found an article saying dolphins are in Venice for real this time. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> I didn't know that maybe when I heard about it, it was just a you know, fake news a rumor? type rumor. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I was kind of relieved that it didn't turn out to be a total hoax. <laughs> and, you know. And uh, if you click on that article, well, if you click on the link to the article, there is video of a dolphin yeah. swimming through the canal. So I thought, oh, that's cool. Well, and, you know, when we watched um, The Embalmer, not only did most of the scenes take place at night, but it was black and white. So there's no way for me to really compare the color of the water in this video on this article to what we saw in the film. But it certainly looks a lot cleaner and clearer than it yeah. did back in the uh, days of the embalmer. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I might have some pictures of one of our trips to Venice. I'll look through them and see if I can find the brownish, brackish, disgusting water that we saw when we were there. it is time that we talk about our deep dive for today. This is a 1966 film 
called The Murder Clinic. For everybody listening, if you haven't watched The Murder Clinic yet, and you don't want to listen to us talk about it before you watch it, I would recommend looking for it on YouTube. There is a very good copy of the film on the channel called The Geologist. So if you look up the... Everybody comes up with these names. Geologist. So it's T-H-E-G-I-A-L-L-O-G-I-S-T. YouTube. So if you if you search for the ge- the geologist YouTube, you'll find their channel. This channel has a lot of high quality Jalo films that, for whatever reason, have not been removed. Maybe th- between thirty and forty, and the one that we're covering today, it looks like the geologist may be uploading films to YouTube in you know, historically chronological order. The first film uploaded was The Evil Eye, which is the English language cut of The Girl Who Knew Too Much. Um, The next upload is Blood and Black Lace, and the next upload is The Murder Clinic from 1966. Hmm. After that, um, Black Veil for Lisa, Sweet Body of Deborah, Paranoia, which I believe we're talking about... Yeah, it's Paranoia is the um, the Lindsay Carol Baker film that was also known as Orgasmo. Not to be confused with the other film called Paranoia that has Carol Baker in it, directed by Umberto Lindsay. <laughs> uh, but let's let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> um, so yeah, check out the Geologist on YouTube. You'll find uh, a very good copy of this film and many others. Um, hopefully, no one will get wind of it and it will stay up. So. Um, yes. So that is the murder clinic. We're going to talk about it in detail right now. And Al, um, you are the master of production notes, so I'm going to hand it over to you. Okay. This film is an Italian and French co-production. Uh, it was released under different titles, very different titles across Europe. In Italy, the, uh, The title was La Lama Nel Corpo, which is the blade in the body, and that ties into something I'll be hitting on later. In France, this was released as Les Nuits de l'Epouvant, which is Nights of Terror. In Belgium, it was released as Griselnachten, which is Horrible Nights. And I couldn't tell if it was Germany, Austria, or Switzerland, but the title in German, was Das Monster auf Schloss Morley, the monster at Castle Morley. Mm. And if you look for it, that's a pretty cool poster because it has a blurb across the top in German that translates as, This shocker teaches you fear. So, huh. a very self-assured marketing campaign for this film. Huh. Uh, the... Credited director is Elio Scardamaglia. He was mostly a producer. This is, I think, his only directing credit. 
Uh, he was born in 1920. He died in 2001. He's from a town called Amelia here in Italy. He has 31 producer credits uh, that include a lot of peplum and spaghetti westerns. But this is his only directing and writing credit. A co-director that is listed, who I think is most likely the actual director, is a man named Leonello De Felice, born in 1916 in Naples. He died in 1989. He has nine directing credits from 51 to 66. Uh, He did mostly drama-type films, and this was his last film that he gets uh, directing credit for. Uh, This was supposedly based on a novel called The Knife in the Body, which relates to the Italian title that I read earlier, The Blade in the Body. This is supposed to be a novel written by a man named Robert Williams, but I can find no information anywhere on line about a novelist named Robert Williams who wrote a book called The Knife in the Body. And let's put a pin in that because that'll come up in a bit. There are, let's see, how many? Two credited writers for this. One is Ernesto Gastaldi, who a lot of you have already heard of. He was born in 1934 in a town called Gralia here in Italy. He has 124 writing credits between 1960 and 1998. And I think, as I've said before, if you make a list of 10 of the best jolly, his he's probably responsible for half of them. <laughs> uh, Maybe more. <laughs> yeah. And I noticed doing research for this film in 1966, the year this film came out, he has 12 writing credits for that year alone. Wow. Which is pretty impressive to crank these out one a month. And maybe they're not all masterpieces, but enough of his work are masterpieces. It's pretty impressive that he was so prolific. He's responsible for the screenplays for Sweet Body of Deborah, Forbidden Photos, uh, Strange Vice, Scorpion's Tale. I've kind of abbreviated these titles because, as you know, Jalo titles will take the wind out of your lungs real quick. Uh, <laughs> High Heels, Bloody Iris, Locked Room, uh, Death Walks at Midnight, Torso, Suspicious Death, Scorpion with Two Tails, that we just talked about a little bit ago. And a lot of people don't know this, and smart people still won't, but Scorpion with Two Tails was actually <laughs> a sequel to The Case of the Scorpion's Tail. So bust that out at your next Jalo party. Was it really, though? I mean, I've never no. seen The Scorpion with Two Tails. Oh, okay. <laughs> no. But it's, it's fun to think that. And it's I think if you imagine it, 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 it might make sense anyway, because... Uh, an interesting fact about Ernesto Gastaldi that I came across was that uh, I think his one film that he directed was Libido. Right. You've seen Libido. So. Uh, he married the actress Mara Maro, who was in that film. She's the right. blonde that gets tied to the bed at the end. Yes. So that was his wife. And they had three kids and uh, assumably 
lived happily ever after. Uh, the and other he's still around. The interesting thing about Ernesto Ernesto Gastaldi mm-hmm. is that unless somebody has you know decided to steal his identity, he has a Facebook page, wow. and I've seen. I've seen that particular Facebook account making comments on the Jalaholics page. So I don't know if he's still around, if he's still involved, if someone's doing it on his behalf or if it's just a fan, you know, version. But uh, yeah, I think he's still out and about and and relevant with regard to, and I think it's probably because, you know, there is kind of a, underground renaissance for giallo films and you know he's probably one of the last kind of living icons of that movement you know if you're talking about Mm -hmm. the who's who of of giallo um you know you say argento and you say sergio martino and and his brother uh is it luciano martino who produced this particular film yeah luciano Uh, yeah um, but Ernesto Castaldi is, you know, he's in that list as one of the all-stars. He's like the Michael Jordan of Jallo screenwriters. Yeah, I found no information that he has passed. So he's supposedly still out alive and kicking somewhere. Yep. And let's see, if he was born in 34, that would make him, what, 91 or 90, 89? My math is... Not all that, so. Right. Yeah, that'd make him 89s. Wow. Okay, good for him. The other writer, which we just mentioned, was Luciano Martino. And his name might sound familiar because his brother is Sergio Martino. He's a producer. Sergio's the director, for the most part. Luciano was born in 1933 in Naples, and unfortunately, he passed in 2013. As a writer, he has 94 writing credits between 55 and 2012. And another thing that is worth uh, noting about Luciano Martino is that he was married to Ser- to, uh, to Edwige Fenech mm. and wrote many of her films, uh, both jolly and sex comedies, in the 70s. So, uh, okay, now the pen that I put in earlier about the supposed novel, The Knife in the Body by Robert Williams, we'll pull that out now. Gastaldi and Martino both are credited with writing the novel Murder Clinic, and they both use pseudonyms, uh, neither of which was Robert Williams, but... uh, it kind of makes me wonder if maybe they just did like a novelization of the film and just sold it to Mondadori to spit out as one of their Jalo uh, pulp books. And that was it. Hmm. There is a third writer credited on IMDb, a man named Albert Miller, who is from Philadelphia, born 1905, died 82. His credit is only for the German version dialogue, which makes me wonder if he wrote it in German or if he just changed some things for cultural references or something for the German audience. 
But besides that, he has eight writing credits, including this and uh, three films and four TV series. And that's that for the writers. The cinematography is done by Marcello Masciocchi. There's no biographical information for him, but he has 59 cinematography credits between 60 and 91, including Sweet Body of Deborah, a giallo called Tropic of Cancer, and You're the Hunter from the Future, hmm. which fans of Antonio Margheriti might have seen. Now, I was going to ask you... Um Earlier, but I forgot and I didn't want to interrupt. Um, okay. When you talk about the genre or filone called um, peplum, is that what it is? Yeah. Is that like sword and sandal? Is that what that, peplum is? Yeah, that's exactly sword and sandals. Oh, okay. It's, a, uh, it's one of those highfalutin words that grad students use, right? <laughs> like, so, yeah, the filone is peplum, but the genre is sword and sandals, so... <laughs> Same type thing. Okay. Uh, anyway, sorry. The music was composed by Francesco De Masi, and this was an eye opener for me. Uh, okay, well, not this, but he was born in 1930, died in 2005, and he was born in Rome. The eye opener is that he has 137 composing credits for films between 1952 up to 2008. Yeah. So he's almost, I mean, I'm not sure what the numbers are exactly, but that's almost as prolific as Morricone or somebody like that. Yeah, absolutely. He, he did the music for The Third Eye, which you mentioned a minute ago. Uh, he did the music for The Weekend Murders. Yep. The New York Ripper. And a ton of spaghetti westerns and other typical Italian genre films like Polizieschi and uh, comedies and stuff. Yeah. And the, um, you know, of course, if you are a longtime listener of the podcast, you will remember that the original intro had a little bit of the music from New York Ripper in it. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a very, um, memorable score. Uh, it's one of the things about the New York Ripper that I always like, like as soon as I decide I'm going to sit down and watch it and they go through that introduction where the dog wanders off into the, <laughs> into the weeds and comes back with a severed hand and then they start playing the music. Right. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, such a great theme to connect to. And um, the other thing that I did notice about this guy was that I think they used some of his music in the latest Tarantino film. I'm not sure. It must have been from one of the spaghetti westerns that he did, but it's listed huh. uh, in the soundtrack. So cool. But but Tarantino does that a lot. I mean, there's a we talked about this before, but there's a scene in Kill Bill where they're playing uh, the theme that you hear in The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. Mm -hmm. Location. A lot of this film was shot 
indoors and you might think it's a set but actually i think the exteriors and the interiors based on things i found online were shot at the villa parisi of frascati which is a very old villa southeast of rome the main original part of it was built between 1604 and 1605 and the quote-unquote new additions to the villa were done in 1729. And this is a villa or country mansion that Napoleon Bonaparte's little sister lived there when mm. she was married to an Italian prince. And if you remember the Death on the Four Poster episode and were wondering, yes, you can book your wedding at the Villa Parisi outside <laughs> of Rome. And uh, I think it'd be, well, I'll mention this later when we get to it in the film. All right. So the cast, this has some, um, actually not a lot, really just about one name that we might've heard before. And that is William Berger. He plays a part of Dr. Vance, William Berger, was in My Dear Killer and Five Dolls for an August Moon and a bunch of other stuff. He has 152 acting credits between 57 and 95. Yeah. He's an Austrian born in Innsbruck in 1928, and he passed in 1993. The other top-billed person was Francoise Prevost, and she plays the part of Giselle. She was born in Paris, and I think her inclusion in this film has to do with the fact that it was an Italian-French co-production. She was born in uh, 1929. She passed in 97. 83 acting credits between 49 and 95. She was in Your Sweet Body to Kill, which I think is a Jalo, but I yes. haven't seen it yet. And she had a lot of credits, but the other one that kind of jumped off the page at me was The Sinful Nuns of St. Valentine. <laughs> so if uh, if you have a yen for nunsploitation 70s style, you might want to look that up. Uh, Who doesn't? What, yeah. <laughs> what's not to like about horny nuns? Uh, she plays an abbess of a uh, convent, I guess you'd call it. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, next up we have an actress named Mary Young. She plays the part of Elizabeth, who is Dr. Vance's long-suffering wife. There's no biographical information about her, and she only has two acting credits, 65 and 66. The other film she did besides this was a Euro spy called... Secret Agent 777, Operation Mystery. So, I don't know what happened to her after that. Hmm. I hope she's well. <laughs> and kind of in the same boat, we have Barbara Wilson. She plays the part of Mary. She is the newly hired nurse at this clinic. And... Zero biographical information, and this is the only acting credit on her IMDb page. 
And I thought that was kind of disappointing because I thought she was one of the better actors in this film. Yeah, agreed. Okay, playing the part of Laura, who is kind of the uh, the key to the whole story that we find out later, is played by Delphi Mauro. Again, no biographical information. Only three acting credits. Uh, including 1966 and the very next year, 67. Her other two films were The Tough One and a film called Danger Death Ray, which sounds kind of Euro-spy to me. Uh, Playing the part of Sheena, who is kind of the, the housemistress of the clinic, is an American named Harriet Medden, She was born in 1914. She died in 2005. And she has 49 acting credits between 46 and 96. And she did some work with Mario Bava. She was in the film Black Sabbath. And she was also in Blood and Black Lace. And I found out that she had also done two episodes of Northern Exposure, which was one of my favorite TV shows back in the day. Hmm. And she was also, she had a cameo in James Cameron's The Terminator. Yes. Okay. That's right. Uh, She was just credited as customer and I haven't seen that film in a while. So. (laughs) Okay. uh, Ivan, who is kind of the handyman around the clinic is played by Germano Longo. He was born in Poggiardo, Italy in 1933. He passed in 22. 70 acting credits, 1954 to 2014. His second credit is a film that he was billed as a star in, but everything after that was kind of bit parts. So I guess... uh, Maybe somebody was overconfident when they hired him, or the film that he made didn't have a lot of returns, so he got cut down a peg or two. But he did a ton of sword and sandals and spaghetti westerns. And then after this film, or later into the 70s, he started playing in police and military war-type films. In this clinic, there is a paranoid schizophrenic Named Fred. He is played <laughs> by Massimo Righi, born in Ferrara in 1907, died in 83. He has 47 acting credits between 58 and 79, and he seemed to be a favorite of Mario Bava's also, because he too was in the film Black Sabbath, as well as Planet of the Vampires and, again, Blood and Black Lace. Right. Yeah, he's the um the coke fiend in Blood and Black Lace, right? I think. I could see that. It's it's been a while since I've watched it. Yeah. Uh, but I remember there was a coke fiend and imagining Fred when he's flipping out later. <laughs> exactly. Being a coke fiend. Yeah, I could see that. Okay, and probably one of my favorite Jalo victims that we've seen in a while is Jane. She Mm. plays a mute woman who is 
uh, a patient here at the clinic. She is played by Anna Maria Polani. She has no biographical information available online, but she does have 11 acting credits in a very short period between 64 and 68, most of which are sword and sandals and spaghetti westerns. Uh, one of the housemaids that we get to know a little bit is named Katie. She is played by Rosella Bergamonti. Again, no biographical information, but she has 50 acting credits between 66 and 74. So she, when she was busy, she was very busy. Uh, this was her very first film. But interestingly, I found out that in 1962, in the Miss Italy pageant, she won the ribbon or sash or whatever you call it uh, for being 1962 Miss Smile. And <laughs> I found a, a photo from that pageant where she's standing there with like the, the person who won the whole thing and then the runner up or whatever. And yeah. she's wearing this big sash that says Miss Smile. And the look on her face is, it, it's, it tickled me. I laughed. And uh, <laughs> if you're ever really bored at work, I recommend Googling that. Uh, let me see. Between 66 and 74, she did a lot of spaghetti westerns and Euro spies. She was in the Polizio Tesco Milano Caliber 9, which is one of the top of uh, Polizieski yeah. films. And every episode, I find something that has to go on my watch list. And thanks to doing this podcast, I'm never going to be able to <laughs> run out watching old movies. Yeah. <laughs> there was a film called When Love is Lust. And she stars in it, which wouldn't be enough. But there's also Francoise Prevot, who we talked about just a minute ago. And right. she plays Giselle in this. And there's also Eva Allen that we've seen before in, uh, oh, she was in Death Laid an Egg. Okay. And, of course, my favorite, Femi Benussi. So, straight to yeah, the Yeah, you list. like her. Yeah. <laughs> so, there goes another 90 minutes of my future. Uh, there is a small part well, a character that we only see very shortly. He is a coach driver who is uh, with Giselle when we first meet her. He is right. played by Philippe Herson. And I thought it was such a small part that I wasn't even going to mention it. Uh, but I found out that he was in the film So Sweet, So Dead, which is one of my favorite Jolly. So I threw him in. Right. He was born in 1908. In Ecomoy, France, and he died in 1982. He has 91 acting credits between 1930 and 1978. Hmm. And that is all of the production notes. All have. right. Very thorough. Very thorough, my friend. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up was... In preparation for the discussion today, I actually went back and I'm going to give these guys a plug again because um, they deserve it. There's a podcast called Fragments of Fear, which mm -hmm. has not 
had an update since uh, July of 2021, which is a sad thing. Um, it is uh, a dual hosts, uh, Peter Jilmstad and Rachel Nisbet. And episode five, they cover the same film, The Murder Clinic. Hmm. And I listened to uh, I listened to their covering of the film prior to this recording and got some good info out of it that I'll be able to relate when we go through the scene by scene. But one of the things that I found out um, that they did when they did some research on William Berger is that apparently he was arrested for suspicion of drugs. He and his wife were both arrested for suspicion of drugs and something bad happened to his wife. Uh, she went into a coma and then died and he was, wasn't able to see her because he had been kept in some sort of incarceration on suspicion of marijuana possession. Hmm. And um, so I, I had never heard about that, but apparently once he was released from prison, he went back and continued to do acting. Um, so that's an interesting little footnote there about William Berger. But uh, yeah, but I would recommend it. Um, after you listen to us, um, <laughs> Go and listen to a legitimate podcast talking about serious and uh, complicated aspects of. The <laughs> I don't. I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to make us sound uh, too pedestrian. But if you listen to fragments of fear, you'll see that they're very well researched and um, that they've that they plan a lot of what they're going to say before they say it, which <laughs> is a lot different than what we do here. So they're a little um, more serious, I'd say. A little more serious, yes. Professional, so to speak. Yep. And they and they're very well well researched um based on the not necessarily based on the idea that they just go out and do research, but you can tell that you know both of the hosts of that podcast know a lot about film and a lot about film history. So mm -hmm. uh, go check them out um when you Get a moment. But before you do that, listen to us. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the, the murder clinic now. We've gotten all of the production credits out of the way. And uh, let's talk about this film and go through it. Um, again, just to set the stage here, this is a period piece. We don't find that out until after the first credits are done rolling. Um, we find out this is taking place... Um, at least thematically, in uh, eighteen seventy, and I think does it say is it say Morley? Is yeah, the, is the place, and I'm not sure where that is. To be honest with you, I think it's, we're supposed to be in England for this. Yeah, somewhere in in England, like Victorian era England countryside. Um, but we don't really know that just yet um, because the uh, the opening credit sequence is definitely better than most. Um, it starts off with the titles of the cast and the other people responsible for the film kind of um, interspersed with these short little scenes. And it looks like someone is 
walking around looking at things. You see a fireplace, we see a bookshelf, we see this mantle of busts. Um, and it almost looks like someone shining a flashlight, which is probably what it really <laughs> was in when they when they recorded when they filmed this. But it's I guess it's supposed to you know we later find out that it's a, a candle, uh, in some sort of oil candle uh, torch thing. Um, mm-hmm. But eventually, you know, uh, and and the music starts right away, and we could talk about the composer. We, t- we talked about the composer before, but the composer uh, of this score and the score that's used in the film is really well done. I think it, it fits really well with the film itself. You can make arguments that some of the music that we hear in Jalo film, you know, that were written by um, uh, Ennio Morricone or uh, Bruno Nicolai, some of them may have been written and then repurposed for Giallo as opposed to written specifically for the film. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that for this film, you can tell that the music and the soundtrack was written directly and and specifically for this film. There's even a nice little um, part, a nice little, a nice little touch where the, the flashlight pans over this, these piano keys and then you actually hear in the soundtrack, like the piano being played as part of the soundtrack. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I caught that too. I thought it was pretty cool. But ultimately, after we get through most of the credits, we then start to see a figure emerge. A hooded, shrouded figure carrying what looks like a candle, a silhouette, moving slowly from the left to the right side of the screen. Um, and the credits continue to kind of intersperse and the music continues to um, get more and more tense. And then we see a couple of frames that make us as, as modern uh, consumption, as modern consumers of Jalo, we see these two things and we go, uh Oh, we see the uh, black gloves and we see the, uh, the razor, the straight razor. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, you know, this is right up my alley. You know, this is going to be a Jalo <laughs> film. This is exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah. And um, ultimately, after we see the razor blade, we see uh, a very dark kind of silhouette or shape of a female, the back of a female. And then we see someone lighting a candle and light kind of coming into the scene. And then we hear a scream. And then it flashes the murder clinic, Technicolor and Technoscope. Mm-hmm. Actually, it doesn't say the murder clinic. It says D. D murder clinic. Murder clinic. Murder clinic. Yeah, that's German. Technicolor, Technicope, Technoscope. So um, right then and there, uh, before we even get to the next part, um, I really like this credit sequence. I think it... it um, if you're if you're looking at this film as a prototype giallo, you can see that this really uh, has a lot going for it as far as setting the stage and setting the mood and 
incorporating a lot of the elements that we will see, you know, four or five years later when the Jalo becomes popular. Mm -hmm. I have one question about this opening credit sequence. Uh, I agree with you that it was interesting. It was very well done. But from what we see later in the film, what the hell did we just see? Because we assume this woman got murdered and slashed to pieces by you know cloaky mixed razor guy or person, who knows. But nobody ever mentions it. It never comes up. And I, I don't know. Are we to assume that this happened... Uh, like this was a regular thing at this place. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, not only all of the things that you just said, but also in the next scene, we see the woman who lights the candle. It's the exact same scene and she's not dead. She's with, uh, Ivan, I think. With Ivan. Yeah. Yeah. It's Kitty, yeah, we, Kitty, Katie. Katie and Ivan. Um, and so they, they used that that little flash of her lighting the candle to light the lamp in the beginning um, to make you believe that she lit the, you know, she lit the lamp and all of a sudden the light exposed the killer and she screamed and she was killed with the razor blade. But, um, but yeah, that's what we're led to believe, but we don't see any of that. So was that just a tease to get us into the mood for the rest of the film? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you could, you could say, and I don't have any evidence to back this up, but you could, you could theorize that that entire opening sequence could have been used as a trailer for the film. Uh, um, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's spooky. You hear the music, you see the killer, you see the knife, you hear the scream. And then it says the murder clinic and then that's it. And maybe that's yeah. enough for a trailer. And then they threw it in the beginning of the film. Huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, from a from the thematic standpoint, I don't think that. Yeah, it's hard to know. As we get into the rest of the of the narrative, we may revisit this. But I'm under the impression that the first murder is. Well, I don't know. I mean, it, if once you get to the end and find out, you know, what the murderer's motive is and everything else, you you ask the question. Has this been going on prior to the beginning of the film? Right. Is that is that what we were watching, or were we watching something that hasn't happened yet, and we're just getting like a a preview, you know? Right. So the first one that happens that any character that we're watching reacts to, we see later. Right. But watching this opening credit sequence, I guess maybe just because I've been conditioned by all the dozens of other films like this that I've watched. I expected that when the credits were done and we open on a scene with the characters that we're going to be following, there would be a point where somebody finds a body or at least wonders, oh, where's brunette candle girl? I don't know. I haven't seen her in a while. And then. Right. Right. And that just it. It's like it, it's a big nothing burger. But I like the <laughs> idea that it was a trailer that they just kind of tagged on at the beginning. Yeah, that could have been it. Or it could have just been. You know, hey, we want to set the mood, um, even though. Yeah. You know, I don't think that there was enough scrutiny back when this thing was first watched that you noticed that the thing that they showed 
with the woman lighting the candle happened a second time. Um, we just notice it cause we watched the movie over and over again, but, um, right. Yeah. I don't, it, it's, it's, uh, it could be like them just setting the tone and saying, Hey, you know, there's, there's a murderer, uh, in this, in this environment. And it's been going on for a while because if you know the story and you, you know, the characters, um, our Dr. Vance, who has, you know, this kind of takes a liking to any female that comes his way. Um, <laughs> maybe this has been going on for a while, you know? Um, and so the, 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 the killings have been going on prior to the beginning of the film, but it also may just be, Hey, we want to give you a preview of what's going to happen. And it hasn't happened yet. Right. Um, okay. but yeah, good point. Good, good, uh, good question. Um, now I have to say right up front that one of the reasons why it took me a while to really like this film is because I don't like period pieces. Um, uh, let me say that again. It's not that I don't like them. It's just that it's harder for me to, um, warm up to them as it is watching a film that I would consider to be taking place in modern day, whatever. Um, and especially the ones where everybody's wearing wigs and it's like horse drawn carriages and Victorian era stuff. Just, it doesn't appeal to me for some reason. So it's tough for me to, to warm up to this film. But after, I mean, I've, I've seen this a bunch of times cause I watched this, uh, when I was redoing the website and this is one of the films I watched. And then I watched it after, um, I originally listened to the fragments of fear podcast. I went and watched it again. Um, but most of the time I'm watching this going, how authentic is this film as a period piece? Like, did they have these kinds of things back in 1870? Um, you know, and it's, it really, it, for me, it's kind of a pain in the ass cause I don't really want to be obsessed or focused on that while I'm watching this, but that's what happens and I can't really avoid it, but. And there's um, one thing in particular that I found pretty anachronistic about hmm. this film in 1870. And I'll be bringing that up in a bit. Okay, good. I'd be interested to hear what it is. So, okay. um, so, uh, the scene is set. It's 1870 in Morley. We see the front of that villa that you were talking about. And one of the things that, it reminded me of is again, and you, I think you already mentioned this in the production credits, but the outside, um, ex the exterior shots of the, the, the place in death on the four poster, which is also mm -hmm. the same building in libido. Um, right. and also I think murder by music, maybe, or maybe I'm thinking, I, I'm getting them all confused. Murder by Music was one of them uh, as well. But this one, it's the same thing. Like they show a nighttime outdoor shot of the, of this villa. Mm -hmm. And because it's an actual dark nighttime shot, it looks like the villa is tilted to the right a little bit. It's not like centered. Um, because you can't really see the dimensions of the back of it because it's a nighttime shot. But when they finally 
show like a daytime shot, then you can see, you know, a little bit more of the villa. But um, yeah, they've got that one so- shot of the villa. And then right away, we we see the couple in bed and uh, we meet Kitty or Katie and Ivan. And it's really interesting because these two characters really don't have much to do with anything. Um, I think Ivan is more in the film than than Katie is as far as a character, but they really, I I don't know that they deserve to be in the first scene. It's like, um, it's interesting. They're in bed, they get out of bed and she's talking about how she's going to be late because Dr. Vance, you know, is a stickler and he's like, I don't like working here anymore. And she's like, yeah, but you have it made here. You haven't been looking for another job. Um, And then all of a sudden they separate and he at the last second drops a razor blade on the ground. And I guess we're supposed to say, okay, here's suspect number one. Right. um, Because he dropped a razor blade on the ground. But that's really all that we know about the two of them. And and we don't really see them or see them interact ever again until the very end of the movie. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, the film itself uh, goes in lots of different directions and definitely introduces a lot of different suspects and red herrings um, to kind of throw you off the, off the trail, trying to figure out who's doing it. But um, right after that scene, um, we see Miss Sheena. I think her name is, is that what they call her? Machina. And she's, doing you know the 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 lights out routine of this place and again we don't really know yet but we're getting the sense that since it's called the murder clinic and um we now hear about this Dr. Vance person that it's probably some sort of a hospital or medical clinic of some sort so machina walks around um we are originally introduced to this woman with the stuffed cat who's laying in her bed. (laughs) And then we're introduced to Mary and Mary is reading a book called Mary Stewart, who I I had to do some research because I'm terrible with, with history, but Mary Stewart is also known as Mary the first or Mary queen of Scots. Mm -hmm. And she's reading this passage where Mary Stewart is about to be beheaded, I think. Yeah. And is it that she's being beheaded by uh, somebody named Elizabeth or someone who was in power named Elizabeth? I think it was a power struggle for the throne between Elizabeth and Mary. And I think it was supposed to go to Mary, but Elizabeth, who might have been her sister, was challenging her challenging her for it. Okay. It's a, uh, it's very game of Thrones type story. Okay. Power. Well, and it's really interesting because there is another character named Elizabeth. So, mm-hmm. um, this kind of, I think that, you know, they, they really went deep with the references here, taking this book and having this particular passage. And it even gets to the point where, Mary is reading it and she says the door to the cell opened. And as as soon as she says that Machina opens the door to the room and walks in. Mm 
and we don't hear what happens with the blade being raised over, you know, Mary's head, um, right. Mary and the, the character in the story. So, uh, Machina comes in and says, you know, you need to stop now. And Mary says, well, I don't mind staying a little longer. And, you know, the, the woman that's in the bed, her name is Janie. Uh, she is mute. We find out she doesn't want Mary to leave, but, um, uh, missed Sheena. I'm never going to remember how to say, I'm never going to remember her name is Machina. Machina's like, no, no, it's time for bed. You guys got to leave. You can't, uh, have these relationships with the patients. And again, I know we talked about this before, but um, she really has this Mrs. Danvers kind of look to her, this uh, Machina, um, like the, yes. the, like the maid with the, with the hair pulled back. And we saw uh, at death in the four poster, we saw somebody that followed that kind of same characterization Um She's like the ultimate servant, but like she knows more about what's going on in the villa than anybody else. Yeah. I was waiting for the scene where she goes back to her room and lets her hair down and waits for the <laughs> doctor to come by. Yeah. Thankfully, that didn't happen in this movie. Yeah. Uh, she kind of has a Frau Blucher look going <laughs> on. <laughs> well, and the other one I remember is, believe it or not. The first creep show, which is like an anthology, I think it had like four or five stories. The very mm-hmm. first, uh, the very first story in that anthology was about the zombie who came back to life because it was Father's Day. And oh, right, yeah, you remember that. So the woman, yeah. the character who uh, is the servant working in this house where they're all gathered, her name is Mrs. Danvers. So. I think oh. that was supposed to be a nod to the Hitchcock film, but at any rate. Um, okay. So, uh, let's see. Um, after Mary leaves the room, uh, Machina shows her around. Um, does she meet the cat lady at that point? I think she does. And that's not until the next morning. Oh, okay. So everybody goes to bed and then we see the hooded figure again. And mm-hmm. we then come to um, what I would consider to be probably the best and most um, comprehensive murder set piece of the film, which is the murder of Janie. The The door opens, the shrouded figure walks in and carefully pulls down the covers. <laughs> Interestingly, for, for some reason, interestingly, pulls down the covers. Now, mm. this figure is dressed all in black with a black robe with a hood and gloves. And there's no way to see anything close to a face or skin or anything. So there's no way to tell if this is a man or a woman. Um, but as the murderer goes to unsheath the straight razor, Janie wakes up and screams and runs uh, out the window. And I have a question mark here because is she on the first floor? And if not, how did she, you know, I see her jumping out the window now. 
And if you look at the exterior shot of the villa, you'll see that there are a lot of windows and a lot of shutters. But I don't know if, you know, the ne- the very next scene after she runs out the window is she's running uh, in the courtyard. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a continuity thing that probably doesn't need to be debated for very long. But um, I would think that people who are mentally unstable shouldn't be... Um, put in a position where they can get out the window or, or <laughs> escape, you know, it's one thing to, to let them have windows that open as long as they're on the second or third or fourth floor, because it, as long as they're not stupid enough to jump they're you know, they're going to stay put. But if they are given a window that's open on the very first floor where they can run, run away. I mean, that doesn't sound like a smart way to, you know, create this, this clinic, but yeah, I had a lot of questions about this place as a mental health facility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's that the windows is like the least of its problems, I guess. But when I found the pictures of the, the villa online, I realized how huge this place was. Yeah. And there's what four patients that we meet. Yeah, and then there's, are you including the one that is always off screen? Yeah, uh, they refer to him as uh, Mr. (laughs) Burt or something. He's always asleep. He's always sleeping, yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, unless he's paying rent for like 90 of the rooms that you have here, how is this (laughs) a business? I mean, they have more employees than customers or patients. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the, anyway. I would have, it would have really been cool if, uh, that particular character, Mr. Whatever you said his name was, was actually Mr. the Burt. killer. Yeah. That'd be great if he was the killer. You never saw oh, him once. Be, yeah. Classic Jollo. Yeah. Find out who it is. Oh, that person that we never saw. <laughs> yeah. It was him the whole time. So at any rate, uh, Jane, is it Janie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Janie escapes and you have what I would call a blood and black lace homage. Yeah. Uh, if you want if you want to call it that because basically the next few scenes of her running through the courtyard and through the the brush with the um with all the 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 bushes and, and the green leaves and the lighting and then um this quintessential shot of her emerging behind this fountain that's lit up and it looks just like, you know, the opening scenes of blood and black lace for sure. And she's wearing a very diaphanous nightgown. Yeah. And the light from behind and watching her run was like the most mesmerizing thing I'd seen in a while. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. It was fantastic. I liked it. Yeah. And well, she makes her way to the fountain and, you know, she's dying of thirst. So she grabs (laughs) something to drink. And then all of a sudden our killer appears uh, out of the uh, shadows. And um, as much as you were waiting for there to be a well orchestrated and filmed murder, an actual murder, there isn't. Um And, you know, Blood and Black Lace had been out for a couple of years. So we know that there were some directors who were doing this where they were, you know, really showing 
the, the the orchestration of a murder. But in this particular case, you know, she can't scream, so she's mute. The killer puts his hand over her throat. He makes a couple of very quick motions with his hand and then runs away. And Janie falls flat on her face in front of the fountain. And that's the end. Yeah, um, this kill kind of remind me of Naked You Die and yeah. how it was so just quick and easy and like they were trying to not show you the kill as much yes. as it's supposed to be a, a horror type film. And I couldn't figure out, she jumped out of that bed pretty damn quick when she woke up and saw the guy. Yeah. And you know, good for her. I mean, it's rare that you see uh, victims in films from this era actually being proactive in their own survival. Yeah, especially in the very beginning of the movie. Right. But she, the way she jumps out of the bed, but she couldn't jump off the edge of the damn fountain when she turned around. And, <laughs> well, she was, uh, you know, she was. I guess she was already worn out from running. Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was exhausted. You know, she needed yeah. to, to, she, she didn't have the same kind of get up and go. Plus, I mean, I don't know that. You know, she didn't expect to see the killer right there and was probably scared or shocked into something. So, um, but, you know, I think that the artistic value of this first murder sequence, it kind of stays around for a little bit longer because after the murderer runs away, we see the dog and then we see, um, the caretaker chasing the shadow uh, yeah. of this, of this suspect. And mm-hmm. they, there's a little bit of a chase through these different scenes. And I think that they were, they were well shot. And like, there's the scene where there's all these <laughs> sheets that are like hung on clotheslines. Yeah. Um, which kind of has like a, I don't know. It reminds me of something. I don't know what it reminds me of, but. It made me think of something. But eventually, uh, what's really funny about this is that the guy who's chasing this shape finds his way to a door and says, well, they, they must have come in this way. He opens the door and we, we finally get to meet the Lord and Lady of the Manor, Elizabeth uh, or Elizabeth and mm-hmm. um, her husband, Dr. Vance. And... Um, the the caretaker is reprimanded immediately for barging in to this woman's room without knocking. And, um, you know, he basically says, I, I must be mistaken. I don't know what happened. I thought that I saw somebody come in here and uh, he's kind of made, he's been, he's, he, you know, he's kind of ridiculed and reprimanded. And then he turns around and leaves kind of, you know, with his tail between his legs. And then uh, we get to see um, a little bit of a interplay between Elizabeth and uh, uh, Robert, Robert Vance. And I need to take a moment right now before I forget for anybody who is a fan of the office. um, Every time I watch this movie and he says that his name is Bob Vance. Uh, there's a character in the office named Bob Vance, uh, and he owns a 
a business called Vance Refrigeration. And when he introduces himself to anybody on the show, he says, Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. And um, so every time <laughs> they would say Dr. Vance, I, I would say Dr. Vance, Vance Refrigeration in my head. <laughs> um, so if you know The Office, it, it, I just ruined this movie for you because every time you see Dr. Vance, it's going to be Dr. Vance Refrigeration. So, um, but let's move on. <laughs> um, okay, so in this scene, we just yes. watched the killer chase Jane or Janie across the grounds and then run into the building and be further chased by uh, Walter, the bald man, right. and his dog. The guard dog that barks but still wags his tail. So, okay, good job. <laughs> He sees the door slam, and, and that's why he—that's you know he, how he knows where to go to follow this person. He opens the door and finds Elizabeth sitting, cool as a cucumber, totally relaxed, totally chill, sitting on the chair. Right. Like, uh, what is she doing? Knitting or doing a crossword or some shit? She's like knitting. That. She's knitting. Yeah, she's knitting. I don't think they had crosswords yet. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, she was knitting. they didn't even have words back then uh okay so just remember that for later she's doing a sudoku yeah yeah (laughs) she's playing wordle on her smartphone (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah well uh when i went back to to watch the scene after you know knowing the ending it was funny to watch this knowing you know what was you know the things that were happening off screen i was imagining in my head and then you know, this scene happens and you're like, wow, that's pretty amazing. But and, and to top it off, we find out in the scene that she has a heart condition, supposedly. Right. right. It's like, no, 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 no. If you had a heart condition, you'd be out there laying next to the fountain with Jane. But anyway. Well, and, you know, I don't know if I noticed that they mention her heart condition at least once, maybe more than once. Yeah. And. It doesn't really have any relevance to anything, but yeah, it has nothing to do with anything. It doesn't come up again. I did it's like remember a dropped thread. Yeah, I I do remember when we did uh, lay the Abolique that that was something that they kept harping on that this one woman had a heart condition and that's what was going to happen. This is how they were going to scare her to death, you know. Yeah. At the end of the movie, but I don't know. There's probably no connection there. Maybe it's maybe the idea is that you know. She, they're trying to avert suspicion away from her because if she has a heart condition, how could she be a killer? Or, you know, she's subservient to Dr. Vance in multiple ways because not only is she his wife, but she has some sort of chronic condition that he can take care of. I don't know. I mean, or maybe she's faking it. Like sometimes there's a, a uh, person in a film that's supposedly confined to a wheelchair. And then you find out at the end that they could walk and run the whole time. Right. Yeah. Could be. Maybe it's a cover for her. Yeah. Maybe she so, really doesn't have a heart condition. Yeah. All right. So the next day, um, Mary uh, comes back to Janie's room with some tea and with the intention of finishing the story, but finds that she's gone finds that all of her clothes are gone and also finds the Mary Stewart book with a nice big razor slice across the cover. Um, 
But before she has a chance to like really think about what the fuck is going on here, um, Dr. Vance comes in as well as Miss Sheena to tell her that uh, Janie is gone. She was picked up early this morning by relatives. Mm-hmm. So the cool part about the, the thing I like about the movie in this, in this regard is that we're only 14 minutes in and already we have two people who know that there was a murder and are covering it up. Right. Or at, or at least they know that something bad happened and are covering it up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're saying to yourself, well, you know, who's responsible here and why are they covering this up? So it's, I, I really, I like that they did that right away. Cause you, you already have some suspicions, you know, like the whole idea of this film is okay. Obviously there's a murderer and you know, who is it? And it's another one of these films where we, it really all takes place in one location with a set number of people. So we know that eventually we're, one of the people that we've seen so far, except for the man who sleeps all the time, is going to be the person responsible for all this. But right. we also now know that Dr. Vance and Machina know that there's something going on and they're kind of keeping a lid on it. So I thought that was that was a fun little way to push the story along. Right. And. We know that either they were directly involved because they did it themselves, one or the other, or that somebody else did it and they're helping them, that person cover it up. Right. And they're covering it. So it's, it's, a, it's a very jarring way to start what you're expecting to be a jollo because, you know, like you said, 14 minutes into it, we're like, well, shit, we know he knows about it. So Yeah. It's exactly. like a double red herring, if that's the thing. Yeah, because I mean, in in later Jolly, we we would have something like this happen, but um, you wouldn't have anybody kind of, I guess, basically confirming to the audience that they know the same thing that the audience knows, right? It's like, yeah, in most cases with the later Jolly, none of the characters really know anything about what's going on with the murderer until either they get murdered or they get found out at the end. Um, but in this case, it's like, yeah, we've got a couple of people that are already in on it, but we just don't know in what way or to what degree. So, Yeah, and I'm not even sure how much Dr. Vance knows, but I'll bring that up. Yeah, I, I have that in my notes too. I, I don't know how much Dr. Vance knows because when, when he finally explains everything to Mary, it's not clear that he knows what's going on still. Um, yeah. But anyway, so we, um, the, Mary, Mary leaves that room and then she goes over to meet the woman with the stuffed cat. And then she goes <laughs> to meet Fred who he's kind of, uh, he's, he's like, a, a he's like a medical miracle because he's aware of his own insanity. Like he knows that he's insane and mm-hmm. Most people, you know, I think the whole definition of being insane is that you don't know it. But, I mean, anyway. Um, well, a cool little seed that they plant right here. He said something like, I'd offer you a chair, but they won't let me have one because I might hurt myself with it. Right. Uh, that's kind of a seed, I think, that gets planted and it sprouts later. Right. 
that he may that he may hurt himself. Well, that you can't trust him with any object, really, because yeah. he makes use of something quite ordinary later. Not well, and and yeah, and much. and Mary, um, she seems to be very compassionate towards Fred, but mm-hmm. then the next thing that happens is we start to hear the footsteps coming from the ceiling. And I thought it was cool the way they did this, and I don't know if they did it intentionally, but he looks up at the ceiling first after hearing the noises. And for a split second, you wonder whether it's all in his mind. (laughs) But then they show Machina and Mary, and they hear the noises too. So it's clearly coming. It's clearly audible to everyone. But the footsteps are driving him crazy to the point where he has, you know, a mental breakdown. Um, and you know, Machina, she knows that this is going to happen. So she rings the bell and brings Ivan up to give and the doctor to give him a sedative. Um, because clearly, uh, Fred doesn't, you know, isn't in control and they've got to get him under control. And so they give him a sedative and they put him back and, uh, in his bed, and I think that's it. Like, um, yeah, he's given a sedative and he comes down and um, everybody leaves the room. But um, I think after that point, we see Dr. Vance go up to the third floor and Mary is like, is there anything I can help with? And he goes, no, stay downstairs. And, uh, She's like, you know what? I'm going to go look upstairs anyway. So she goes and starts to look upstairs. But all of a sudden, Ivan shows up and says, no one's allowed up there. Not even a pretty girl like you. And uh, he's ultra creepy. And so she gets creeped out by him and walks back down the steps. Mm -hmm. Um, Meanwhile, we see where Dr. Vance ends up. He ends up in a very dark room uh, confronting a figure that appears to be a woman who has a long, uh, like, orangish blonde hair, strawberry blonde hair. And basically, um, this is where the noise is coming from. You can see that she has, like, a club foot as well as a normal foot, and that's the foot that's dragging along. And... um, and I kind of have a question about that, too, considering what we find out happened later or what happened to her Mm -hmm. before. But we find out later. Right. I'm kind of curious how that ends up as a uh, somebody with a club foot. But (laughs) we can talk about that when we get to the it uh, doesn't doesn't seem like. The catastrophe or the, you know, the, the, the accident that happens to this person would make you not be able to walk. Right. Anyway. Or, or shrink one of your legs or something. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, she's very, um, combative. Uh, Vance says, Hey, um, you know, I'm a doctor. I can fix you. And she says, I don't want any help. Um, and he says something like, you're going to, are you going to keep me here as your slave forever or something like that? Um, 
I really didn't write down the dialogue, but they basically just have this interchange where we don't really see her. We see that she's got a hand that looks pretty deformed and disfigured. And he, you know, I, I guess the idea here is that most of the time she keeps quiet, but when she, all of this noise is coming from the third floor, he decides to go up and find out what's wrong and or what's going on to at least get her to calm down so that she doesn't disturb the other patients. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, he also offers, you know, the, the idea that, you know, Hey, I can fix your problem. I can help you. And she says, no, I don't want to be helped. I just leave me alone. So, uh, Vance leaves the room and, um, she cries a little bit and then, um, that's the end of that scene. And, um, then we do like a very um, big change of scenery. We're no longer in the villa anymore. This is like one of the scenes that takes place outside the villa. And we are introduced to two new characters. Uh, one is uh, the person who will be known as Giselle um, and a man who I don't know if he's got a name in the credits. I think or he has his name coach driver. I saw in the credit, his, the character's name, Mark something, something French. But I saw on the, I think the Italian Wikipedia page for this film that his character is just listed as the coach driver. And okay. I don't think we ever hear anybody call him by his, well, Giselle's the only person we see with him. Right. Uh, so I don't know where they got that from. Well, they're driving along. It's a very windy, um, treacherous night. They're, they've got the horse-drawn carriage. It looks like at least two horses, right? Um, and Giselle is... Uh, she's frustrated. She doesn't want to be sitting in this coach any longer. She wants to take a break. And it's really not clear the relationship between her and the coach driver. Um I, and maybe I was just inventing additional narrative, but it seems like he's taking her somewhere um, because she did something wrong. Like she's some sort of a criminal. Yeah. I read that he is, or he has been hired by her family to take her somewhere. So for a second, I thought maybe he was like, her husband and he was just trying to get rid of her or send her back to her family or something like that. But because they're going to the coast and she, I think the last thing she wants to do is get there. I don't think it's so much that she's tired of writing. I think she's trying yeah. to evade going to where he's taking her. Right. Right. Uh, but apparently they don't have like a personal relationship. I think he was just hired as the guy to take her to wherever. And it might be one of those situations around the time where if you have an unruly young woman in your family who's a little uh, inclined for immoral behavior, you could have her sent off to a convent. Okay, that makes sense. So maybe it's something like that. And Maybe that's def- how she ends up in the sinful nuns of St. Valentine. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. It's all one big, uh, one big uh, storyline. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's all a shared universe. 
Well, she kind of starts to come on to him a little bit and says, hey, why don't we stop now and I'll make it worth your while? And he's like, no, I'm going to take you to the coast. Well, her line is, if you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. Mm -hmm. And she repeats that later to somebody else. And I thought it was just funny. Like, that's her stock line that she uses. Yeah, apparently that not working either time. Yeah, it didn't work in either case here, but it must have worked in the past. (laughs) Yeah, enough to get her sent to the coast. Yeah. (laughs) So something happens with the coach and they have to pull over and the coach driver goes out to see what's wrong. Um, And I think Giselle realizes at this point that this is her opportunity to escape. So she takes... um, looks like i don't know like the the horse whip maybe or i don't know what the hell it is it looks like some sort of baton and she smashes the coach driver over the head a couple of times um and i guess kills him we don't know if he really dies but it's enough to uh to to spook the horses and they ride off carrying the 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 coach driver's body along with them and now all of a sudden, she's alone well, in the woods with... I thought he got dragged too, but then later, we see a shot where she's looking down at the ground. So maybe they ran over him with the wheels or just trampled him? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what I don't like is this is shot day for right. night. And you yeah. can see the sky very clearly, but everything else, the trees and the foreground... It's all dark. The yeah. action is, it's way too dark. I like the little touch that as she was getting down out of the carriage, she took off her right hand glove. Like she was about to do some work, but then she used her gloved hand to pick up the the thing that she hit him over the head with. Right. No fingerprints. But yeah. did they have fingerprints in 1870? I. Well, I think. I mean, they had, had them. them but yeah, they, had them. <laughs> they just didn't dust for them. Yeah, it wasn't a thing. Um. And the other thing that, I mean, with the, uh, that I chuckle at is there's clearly a bunch of people with big bags of leaves throwing them in front of the camera. Um, yeah, with a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> so everything must have been 80 yard later, so you don't hear the the leaf machine. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, Giselle, um, you know, starts to try to figure out what to do in about her situation is walking around and she finds her way to this grotto, which is, um, compared to the previous scene, this one is very well lit. Um, and, uh, very stylized, but ultimately we see, uh, Dr. Vance inside the grotto. He's digging a, a hole and there's a shrouded figure on the ground and at one point, he walks past the figure and brushes the, the shroud with his hand or something. And we see that it's Janie, it's Janie's body and we see her head there. And Giselle is, is watching this whole thing and, you know, kind of spying on this situation. And at one point, I think, you know, Vance hears a noise and goes out to investigate, but he doesn't go far enough to discover Giselle. Um, I like the detail that he puts down the shovel and picks up the pickaxe to go investigate. 
Yeah, because you can. I guess you can do more harm with the pickaxe, right? I mean, I guess, but I just thought it was a cool little touch. Yeah, it was definitely. Like that, if he finds her, she's fucked. She's right? dead. Yeah, one way or the other. So, so she does not get discovered and decides that she's going to leave and uh, walk back out to the main area uh, before you know where the cave entrance is, but. Um, you know, they don't really say how much time has gone by, but ultimately Vance uh, emerges from the cave and now it's daytime and he sees her laying on the ground. Now, I don't know if she actually fell asleep or if she's pretending to be asleep waiting for him to come out. But um, either way, he wakes her up and she tells him she's Giselle. She tells him that her chest hurts a little bit and he goes to feel her up and she's like, Stop, stop, stop. And he goes, no, it's okay. I'm a doctor. And she goes, oh, okay, that's fine. Then feel me up. Um, now, see, I think she did that on purpose. Because we we already know that she likes to use her uh, physique to manipulate men or use her sex appeal to manipulate men. And I think she laid down there kind of on purpose because, you know, she is stranded out in the middle of the woods. She doesn't know where the hell she is. And when he asks, are you hurt? She's okay. But she says, oh, my chest hurts. And then he, you know, like you said, he kind of totally feels her up. And I think she was kind of baiting him to do that so that she could kind of uh, get into his head a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it's it's funny that he doesn't mention that. Actually, I'm a psychologist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> not really like a internist or something. You know. <laughs> well, he gives her jacket. He gives her his jacket, and says, "I have a villa, uh, and I can take you there. You can recuperate there, um, and you can be my guest." So they they go back on the horse drawn carriage. Um, they're back at the villa. There's a few, there, there, you know, there's a, I wouldn't say it's a, an extended scene, but there's uh, a decent amount of, of time where they're traveling back to, you know, it, once they're in the courtyard, they come in and the caretaker comes and takes the, the horse for them. And then we see that uh, Elizabeth is watching from her window uh, at the two of them. Um, then we get to Ivan who comes in and opens the door for them. And Vance brings her in, brings in Giselle. And, um, let's see. There's a a scene where, let's see, it's Vance and Elizabeth and Machina and Giselle all together. And it's a very kind of tense scene. You can clearly see that the women are all kind of sort of competing with each other. I mean, not, not so much Miss Sheena, but the other two. Um, But Miss Sheena has, she has her own kind of hangups, like, because she's kind of in charge as the person who's, who's in charge of all the nurses and whatnot. Um, Yeah. I, I kind of got the impression that she was, for some reason, a little protective of him. 
like maybe she kind of had a crush on him too, but she realized, I don't know, I'm not his type or I'm too old or he's my boss. But anytime another woman gets close to him, except for Elizabeth, she kind of bristles in a very subtle way. Whether it's Mary or, um, yeah, or Giselle, yeah, it's almost like she's the mother-in-law, or she may just be um, very connected to the idea that he has this, you know, this clinical purpose as a scientist, and all of these women are just kind of, you know. Distracting, distracting him, him. Yeah, yeah, distracting him from all that, and she wants to get him back into, you know, doing his experiments on guinea pigs. So yeah, um, so they decide that they're going to give her Janie's room. Dun dun dun, and and now yeah, I, I noticed that as soon as they said that, it was like oh. <laughs> Well, and, and, and I guess maybe yeah. for them, Janie's room is kind of understood to be the clinic love suite. Because. Or it may be, yeah, it may be the clinic love suite and the murder suite. Because if you assume that Janie was not the first victim and that this has been going on, maybe it always happens in the same room. But Right. And it's brought up later that you bring, you know, you bring women here, seduce them and then get rid of them. And so that might just be. It might be understood among the people in the house that, oh, shit, they got put in the love suite. So. But I wonder if, if Machina knows who the killer is. I mean, I don't think that Vance does, but I don't know if she does. Anyway. I think Vance thinks he knows who it is, but I don't think it's who he thinks he is. Right. Exactly. And, yeah, I, it, I didn't even follow that thought, the extra half step, to wonder who Sheena thought it was. I mean, she obviously knows something's going on. Right. But anyway. Well, so let's see. Giselle is brought to Julie's room and Mary is there to help her get situated. And at that point, we do see that there is a window that appears to be a window on, on a higher floor than the, the first floor, which then goes to the question again of how did Janie escape? In the first place, yeah. but whatever, huh. it's a continuity thing. Um, okay, just a second. This scene here, where um, Giselle and Mary are talking in Jane's room, and Mary's showing her where the bathroom is, and Giselle's you know, checking herself out, and then she starts asking about uh, who she calls Robert. Oh, you mean Doctor Vance? Right. As these two women are staring at each other, I had to pause it to uh, go nuke my coffee or something. And I came back, and they're face-to-face they're -face in profile. And this is my question about anachronism that I mentioned earlier. Okay. In 1870, who the hell was wearing fake eyelashes? Right. Because, ugh. And I mean, I know it's a very 60s thing and 70s thing, and it's even kind of a thing now. But stuff like that just kind of took me out a little bit. Well, yeah, you're right. And also, you know, the, the, the jacket type thing that Giselle is wearing, this red plaid thing, that doesn't look mm -hmm. like a period. It doesn't look like it's from the period, but 
if you look at all the other things that people are wearing with the frilly, you know, wrists and yeah, lots of, lots of, um, I, I don't know. It just, it doesn't seem like it fits properly. Yes. Um, but anyway, well, maybe she's a sophisticated city girl and these are just you know, country doctors. And stuff. Right. That could be. So Vance and, uh, lies, uh, Elizabeth, they are together in the room and they're talking and they're arguing. And at this point, Elizabeth accuses Vance of murder. And they talk about the, this is the first time Elizabeth's sister and the accident are mentioned. And then she says something about how she lied under oath to keep Dr. Vance out of jail. Um, but she says, I know that you tried to kill my sister. And this kind of comes out of nowhere. Like, what are we talking about here? But, you know, obviously we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about it later. But it, it serves to kind of, I guess, expand the, the storyline and the relationship between Dr. Vance and his wife. But um, we still don't know with Elizabeth, like how much she knows about what Vance is up to and the fact that there is somebody murdering people and that he's covering it up or trying to. Yeah, we have no idea how much Elizabeth knows about the patients. I mean, does she even know that Jane is gone? And... I think it kind of throws us off the scent of suspecting her because it seems like she's kind of clueless and she's put in a position where she looks like the victim in their relationship. Right. So. That yeah. That's kind of cool. I think, yeah, I think in the scenes that we've seen before or up to this point, Elizabeth is kind of painted as helpless and kind of ignorant. So, mm -hmm. that's a good point. So, the scene switches to Giselle, who's doing her hair in the mirror. I guess it's a mirror. Did they have mirrors back then? Uh, yeah, obviously. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so, <laughs> actually, no. Um, <clears throat> I'm looking at the scene right now. And when when Giselle stands, so Giselle's in the foreground. She stands up and turns around to talk to Machina before she hears the footsteps. And there's no mirror behind her at all. Hmm. Really interesting. So she's sitting there, she's brushing her hair, and she's got her little... Um, uh, pajamas thing with the corset on. Do you did you get the impression that she was dolling herself up, expecting Vance to come by and you know, pay his respects to her? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I think that she, her character, probably expected that the, at some point she was going to be visited by the good doctor. Yeah. Um, 
and you know when machina comes in and says um you know it's lights out time and she's like no screw you i'm not a patient i can stay as late as i want <laughs> and then all of a sudden she hears the the noises coming from the third floor and machino's like i don't hear any noises i don't know what you're talking about so yeah good for machina because it was like oh you want to you know it's, it's like they're having a face off <laughs> with each other you know <laughs> She's like, fuck you. I'm not a patient. What was that noise? Well, I don't hear anything. I don't hear any noises. You want to stay Good up late? For you. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? You're hearing noises? Maybe you should be a patient. Yeah. Or maybe you should go to bed. <laughs> yeah. And it's cool that she tells her to turn out the damn light. And she's like, fuck you. I'm not a patient. And the next time we see her, she's in the dark. So she did turn off the light <laughs> after all. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so score one for Machine. Yeah, but we don't necessarily know how long it's been, but she's still awake. And so this is the first of two times where Giselle decides that she's going to go and investigate what's going on. She puts a little robe on. She grabs her candle. It's not really a candle. It's like a lamp. So um, she's walking through. And this is weird. Um They intersperse her walking around with um, scenes of Vance walking around. Mm-hmm. And then they go back to her and she she walks up to she walks up to the I guess where the the front of the camera is, the 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 front of the screen or the the front of the lens and she she screams at something. I don't know what it is that she sees. I don't know if it's a light that flashes or she sees a figure, but she runs away very quickly. Like it's not even on screen for more than two seconds. She climbed. I'm watching it now. She's, she's climbing up the steps. She's now on the third floor. Um, and then let's see. Then the next scene we see Vance walking again. All right, so she's going up the steps following Vance. She doesn't have the lamp, right? Yeah, where is her? Yeah, why doesn't she have the lamp anymore? Wouldn't it be pitch black? Well, except for the moonlight. Yeah, she doesn't have the lamp anymore. She's walking down the hallway. And here she comes. And she walks up to... She opens the door and there's another hallway. Right. Oh, I think she heard somebody coming. Like she heard the, another door open or something. Yes. Like she's about to get found out. But then discovered. something else happens when she gets to the, in this next scene. She, so there's a lamp on the left side right there. And the lamp goes. Oh, yeah. Somebody leans forward and blows it out right as she walks up to it. Oh, okay. Yep. That's what it is. And Somebody. She runs, in... she runs away. And then, and then the hand comes out, takes the lamp. And you can hear, you don't actually see the smashing, but you hear glass shatter. And the next thing you know, the doorknob is moving. And all of a sudden, it's Fred. Yeah. Here he comes. And he is mad. He is enraged. And he's got this broken lamp cover that is in shards that he's going to use as a weapon and he attacks Giselle and she's fighting him off. He's on top of her on the bed. And then Mary walks in and she's like, Hey mm-hmm. dude, what are you doing, man? 
come on, Fred, don't be like that. All of a sudden, he, <laughs> he stops, and <laughs> she does this long, drawn-out, give me the, give it to me, hand it to me, hand it to me, hand it to me, hand it to me. And once she hands it to him, <laughs> the funny part, but this is the part I thought was funny. Um, <laughs> he comes to, like, he comes out of his psych- like psych- psychotic trance that he's in. Yeah, he just snaps out of it. He snaps out of it, and then he comes over to Mary, and Mary says, um, what does she say to him? Don't worry about it. <laughs> I thought that was funny, because, like, he just attacked this woman, and, you know, what do you mean, don't don't worry about it? Oh, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Don't worry. Well, you know, even if he doesn't actually really snap out of it, if you're on some psycho bend where you're about to slaughter some woman and the gig is up, you've been, you know, other people have come into the room, including Dr. Vance and Ivan, who's basically the clinic enforcer. Right. Why not just be, oh, oh what, where am I? How did I get here? You know, why not play stupid instead of exactly still being belligerent and threatening? I mean, it doesn't do him much good because he still gets locked up. But yeah, yeah. So they they take him away and they lock him up. Um, and they put him in this jail cell that they happen to have down in the basement. But what's interesting is, for a split second, uh, before that scene happens, Doctor Vance is talking to Giselle. And Dr. Vance says, you know, um, I don't understand what's going on. You know, he's got, he's had fits of, of rage before, but he's never attacked a person ever. Um, we're going to have to put him somewhere where he can't hurt anybody. And she goes, what, you mean the third floor? And, uh, uh, dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. and he <laughs> says, no, not the third floor, actually the basement. That's where we have our jail cell. Because, you know, if you have a, a clinic for psychotic people, eventually you're going to need a cell because uh, one of them is going to need to go down there. Right. So Mary, and goes, he was okay. already kind of in solid. I mean, he was already in, I don't know, some kind of confinement. Wasn't he? He was. Cause they kept him in that room with no chair. Cause he could use anything to hurt somebody, which he just proved. Right. I wanted but, to see, I wanted to see him try to kill himself with a chair. Yeah. Where's that movie? Does he does he stand on it and fly fling himself off, or does he smash? <laughs> Try to jump leg off of it, of it and land head? on his head. <laughs> exactly. See, there you go. One cool little touch in this scene here: after uh, Vance sees how Mary handles Fred, it's like he just notices her for the first time. Right? It's like he's seeing her in a whole new light. Yes, and. That light probably has a lot to do with the fact that she's in her nightgown in the love suite <laughs> with the exactly. moonlight coming. And the the extra little fun part about that is as soon as he says something like, uh, oh, you were very brave. As soon as he says that, Giselle off screen is like, oh, because you know, she's really the victim here. But she's more trying importantly, to, yeah, she's trying to take the attention away from uh, from Mary. Yeah, she's trying to, to, uh, whatever the female equivalent of cock block is. (laughs) 
So uh, we won't we won't say. Yeah. Starts with a C, do- but. Okay, um, uh, <laughs> well, that doesn't rhyme like cock block. No, it doesn't. Yeah, uh, maybe the a- word maybe the word punt. You know, like you would punt. Oh. Ooh. <laughs> we just invented a new word, guys. Cunt punt. Oh my god. Anyway, it wouldn't that be a sound fun it at all. wouldn't be a podcast episode without the c word. Um Yeah. Okay. Well, uh at any rate, you know, we have this kind of throwaway scene where Mary goes down to visit um and tell him that, you know, he says something about you're my only friend or something like that. Um, and there's really nothing much to that scene. But um, the next thing that happens is um, we see Dr. Vance and Machina working in the lab with what we find out later is a guinea pig. And mm-hmm. they're talking about skin grafts. And at some point they take the guinea pig and they... Uh, pin it down uh, and like spread eagled with its hands out and its legs out. Now, I don't know if they used a a guinea pig body double or if they didn't care (laughs) about abusing an animal, but it really was, was hard to tell, but um, they're working on this experiment and you know, interspersed with them doing that, we have this other scene with Ivan outside who is talking to Giselle, uh, who's trying to do her thing with another guy. And this time she's doing it because she's trying to get information, I think, about what's going on on the third floor. And um, as she's trying to seduce Ivan... We have Mary and um, the smile pageant winner, who Katie. Com- Katie, who comes in with the laundry. And uh, she says, I think the doctor's looking for you. And so he runs off. And um, then Mary and uh, Giselle have this interchange, or not interchange, they have this exchange very quickly. But what I thought was funny about this was that Giselle, um, Giselle asks Mary, you know, if she's in love and Mary says no. And then Giselle says, well, you will be. And I don't really know why she said that. Like, what do you mean you will be in love? And, you know, she's, she's saying something about how she's jealous of, you know, like there's so many women in this movie that are all kind of secretly plotting against each other. Yeah. But Giselle is like, you know, why did you tell Ivan to run off? Are you jealous? Are you in love with him? And she's like, I, I, are you in love with the doctor and him at the same time? And then she says, well, you're, if you're not in love now, you will be, whatever that means. I don't really understand what she was implying there. but Well, what Mary was doing was she was kind of uh, helping out Katie because as soon as they walked out of the, well, into that area and they saw Giselle rubbing on Ivan's ear. Right. There's a shot where 
Mary immediately turns and looks at Katie like, oh shit. So she knows that they're involved. And I think maybe Katie's a little too timid to stand up for herself. So Mary kind of stepped in and sent Ivan away. Right. But Giselle, she just got there. She probably doesn't know that Ivan and Katie are an item. So she just assumed that Mary was doing that for her own Oh, yeah. Okay. And I think that Giselle uses sex as a way to manipulate people. And she probably doesn't really believe in love and all that gooey type stuff. But she sees that A, Mary is a threat. And B, she's an actual decent, good person who probably has uh, more idealistic values and stuff. Right. And I think her saying that you will be in love, I think that might have been like almost an insult coming from Giselle to Mary. Yeah. Meaning like you're too soft to get along in this world as a woman. You're going to, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a good point. Something like that. Yeah. I like that. But Mary stands up for herself. I mean, she doesn't take too much shit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Good well, for her. after that scene, they're back to the lab. The experiment is complete. And the doctors says, you know, we've got to wait for the results. You're going to have to, you know, lotion up this guinea pig every six hours or something like that. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, that's one way to put it. <laughs> um. And then Ivan comes in and he's like, do you want to see me? And he's like, no, I didn't want to see you. And he says, okay. And nothing really ever comes about. Oh, but, 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 uh, Machina kind of covers, like she seems to, she seems to take all the blame and covers for everybody. So. Yeah. Yeah. Because Vance kind of just stands there looking dumbfounded. Like somebody told him, I didn't call for yeah, you. I, yeah. I don't know what you're talking oh, about. What am I supposed to do? And then Machina is just like, Beat it. <laughs> yeah, it must have been me. Yeah, I'm Get sorry. back to work. And throughout this whole movie, I'm wondering, what is it about Dr. Vance that all these women are just, I don't know. It's like they're drawn to him like moths or something. And I, I don't get it. Well, I mean, I guess if you're going to consider the time period, he's not a laborer. He's a scientist. He's a... You know, he's a more sophisticated man than the normal Mm -hmm. guy who's going to just, you know, uh, tend the grounds and, you know, uh, drive the horse-drawn carriage around. Plus, he's one of the only men there and, you know. Yeah, and he owns the villa. Right. That he was somehow able to buy even after facing financial ruin shortly before. But yeah. Yeah, I guess. Well, after that, we go back to another nighttime scene. Giselle is once again back in her bed, hearing the noises on the third floor and decides once again that she's going to go investigate. So she leaves her room. And um, in this particular version of walking through various rooms, uh, it's, it's a lot more lit. So maybe it's earlier in the evening, but... She comes uh, upon a window that looks down into this big kind of living room area 
where um, Vance and Elizabeth are arguing again. And um, let's see, I don't know. I don't have in my notes what they're arguing about, but it's, I think it's like the same thing that they've been arguing about before. Yeah. So, um, back to Giselle, she keeps walking and she makes her way to the corridor of the third floor and she makes her way to the room that we know is the room with the burn victim in it. And, um, she opens up the door and it looks like there must be a fire burning at this. Point. Yeah, there is. Uh, so the, the woman, the disfigured woman still has her back turned to Giselle, but all of a sudden she turns around and ah, she's the disfigured hideous mess. And um, Giselle is so disgusted and frightened and um shocked that she faints right on the spot and this disfigured woman sticks her head out the window or i'm sorry sticks her head out the door and uh looks at her for a little while and puts her head puts her hand down on her face and um does she doesn't she laugh yeah she starts laughing i think no i think she starts crying is it crying okay I think what she's doing is she's noticing how beautiful this woman is and it's causing her to, you know, feel the pain of yeah her situation all that much more. Right. Remember, and she probably like. even knows that this is probably somebody that uh, Vance or Robert is with. He's stooping. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, the very next scene, Giselle is back in her bed and uh, she wakes up and um, Vance is pissed and he's like, <laughs> I, I want you to leave now. But he, she says, I need to talk to you and I want, um, you know, Mrs. Danvers to leave the house or to leave the room so we can talk. And what's what I just noticed is that she has one shoe on and one shoe and and one shoe not on yeah. uh, Giselle. I don't know why it was probably something they just didn't notice until after the filming was over. I don't know. <laughs> um, I tend to notice when I only have one shoe on. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, again, I don't, you know, like it's like, I can't stop thinking which, about the fact those, that where's my other shoe. Those little details about a movie. Like you always wonder you know, did they tell her to only leave one shoe on it? It makes it look more authentic that you were just carried back to your room because you fainted or did she just forget to put it on or did they lose one of the shoes and said, Oh, we can't film anymore because we need an extra shoe. And they said, screw it. You know, we still have to film and let's film her with well, one. I mean, shoe it kind on. of fits. I mean, she passed out upstairs. My question, did she scream when she saw Laura upstairs? I think so. Okay, because I was wondering, how did they find her, and how long was she laying on the floor before? I mean, never mind. I don't have to see Ivan go up there and carry her down the steps like a sack of potatoes, right? And put her in the bed. But I guess somewhere in transit, her shoe fell off, and <laughs> exactly <laughs> the things that we wonder. Yeah. 
Well, after Mrs. Danvers leaves the room, um, she tells him, look, um, I'm going to uh, leave, but um, I'm going to blackmail you. Uh, let's see. Where am I? Oh, okay. There's my notes. Um, she, she threatens to blackmail him because she mentions the body in the grotto. And he's like, oh, no. Yeah, she plops out, I won't let you bury me in a cave. Right. I, yeah, like, I want to have a different okay. funeral. And I don't yeah. know if you noticed, but whenever she makes these little kind of um, snide remarks, the, the soundtrack mm-hmm. is like, doo-doo-doo-doo. You know, like a, <laughs> a little like extra point of emphasis on, you know, the fact that she just said something that was controversial or a little bit. Yeah, funny. I noticed uh, every time in my head I was thinking, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I'd hear like a bass clarinet kick in or something. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So she, cool. she asks for 50,000 pounds. I'm assuming that's sterling. Yeah. Um, and I did a little bit of research adjusting for inflation. Fifty thousand, fifty thousand pounds in eighteen seventy is worth seven point five million dollars today. Jesus, whoa! So I don't think that they really knew that when they made this movie. Oh man, okay. <laughs> I think they just came out with a number. Yeah, because um, there's no way yeah, there probably weren't fifty thousand pounds in the whole world in eighteen seventy. Exactly. I don't think that he had access to that much money. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, they probably wrote it as like 50,000 lira, which in 1966 would have been like 20 bucks. Yeah. And they were like, oh, no, no, this is England. Oh, okay. And they scratch out lira and they put, they put pounds. Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, so Vance leaves because she starts to kind of do this thing where now that she's blackmailed him, she also says, um. I wonder what it would be like to be, you know, to be the lover of a murderer or something like that. So she's... Yeah, she's still going to throw it on him. Right. So. She's interested in all kinds of weird, kinky stuff, this this crazy woman. But she's stupid enough to blackmail a guy um, that, you know, she, as far as she knows, like she said, is a murderer. And then stay in his house. Because the second he's like, oh, well, that's going to take me a little while to get it. And she's like, okay, I'll be here. It's like, that's <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can wait. I have time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if I was going to blackmail somebody, I would blackmail them. And then I would go into like sub sub secret hiding somewhere. Of course. And yeah. Yeah. Well, but then we wouldn't have a movie. So. Yeah, that's true too. So uh, let's see. This is the next scene. Uh, Vance leaves and Machina is walking around. Um, the woman, the burned up woman is also walking around. And Elizabeth is walking around. And the cat lady is walking around. Um, and then we hear multiple screams. And I think we see like the cat lady scream. And then mm-hmm. we hear a scream. And the next thing we know, Elizabeth is on the ground um, with like a, a lit candle that she dropped next to her body. Um, she's unconscious, but she's not dead. 
and um, I guess the men take her back to her room. But um, what happened here? Like that was my question. Like what was going? Like every like everybody that's a suspect now is up and walking around. Yeah, the whole house is out. Um, okay, but, but so what happened to Elizabeth? I think the idea, because we see, all right, we see her walking, and you said Laura's out too. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So Elizabeth is walking around. Laura is walking around. Uh, Miss Hurley. And her stuffed kitty are walking around. I think the idea was the filmmakers still want us to think that obviously the the uh, the disfigured person in the robe upstairs is the killer, right? So I think we're supposed to think that the killer attacked uh, uh, Elizabeth. But what really happened? And apparently she walks around with one of those trick birthday candles that never go out. Whether you blow on it or drop it on the floor. Right. But the whole... I don't know. Because they show us everybody else reacting and coming out into the hallway. Right. So are those supposed to not be red herrings anymore? I don't know, like Elizabeth walks down the hallway and opens a door and turns right and the cat lady is watching her and then she screams. And then we we cut to all the people who hear the scream and then they all come over to see what happened and they find Elizabeth on the ground. So. I mean, like there was a point in the film where I wondered if uh, Machina was the killer. Right. But right now we're seeing her, you know, coming out of her room, so maybe not. Right. And I don't. I guess the way a lot of these movies work, the only one that we know for sure isn't going to be the killer is the cat lady, because we saw what she was doing and where she was. Right. Uh, when Elizabeth screamed. So. Well, okay. So they take uh, Elizabeth back to her room. Uh, Mary is there. And there really isn't much to it. They just talk about how, you know, she needs some rest and she'll be okay. Um, But the next scene, um, we get the killer again. And we see the, uh, the razor blade. And the killer enters the room. Giselle is sleeping. And um, it's very dark. Like, this scene is extremely dark. And I'm trying to remember whether or not the killer pulls the... Wait, did you mention that somebody took the key to Fred's cell? No. Yeah, that happens... uh... That happens before the murder? Yeah. Did we see just a hand grab the key? I didn't see yeah, that part. Yeah. Oh, okay. It was before the murder. 
So maybe they opened up his, maybe the killer opened up Fred's door. Yeah, I think that's the idea. Or somebody, or maybe Fred is a killer and somebody's just like assisting him in killing or maybe framing him or something like that. Right, right. But I guess if you know somebody's a homicidal maniac and you set them free to go kill somebody else, you're pretty damn guilty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get the um, accomplice points in the Jallo score. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> so the murder of Giselle isn't very well done. It's dark. Um, there's not much to it. Once the screaming and the thing happens, um, the, the actual murder is only for half a second or so. And then the killer runs out of the room like they always do. Now, the next scene is the next day, and I really enjoyed this one shot of, it looks like uh, Katie, and they zoom out from the window that she's standing in to show the entire villa. And again, if you look Mm -hmm. at the first floor, there are bars on the windows, which means that um, somehow Julie jumped out of a at least second story window to try to escape in the very beginning, um, unless she's in a different part of the house, but I don't think so. So, um, okay. yeah. Having bars on your windows on the ground floor is pretty typical. Right. Here in Italy, especially so, down South. Right. So, so, so Julie's room is definitely not on the first floor cause she wouldn't have been able to get out the window. Right. So she got out the window on the second floor or higher, but s- survived any sort of fall to the ground. Okay, but see to the left and right of that area where Katie just came out of? Yeah. There's those arches. Yeah. Well, on the right side, there's an arch, and on the left side, I think that's where the steps are that we see them running back and forth on towards the end. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So if she was in one of the rooms that had a window that came out right above that archway or right above the stairwell on the left side or the staircasing. I don't know. I'd have to find a picture online. I found a really good aerial photo of the whole place. Oh, okay. I'll stick that on as my, uh, my Facebook thing this year or this episode. (laughs) But anyway, well, you know, one of the things that we like to do on this podcast is try to convince ourselves as well as anyone listening that the, you know, the continuity errors really aren't errors, that they really were planned properly. Um, and of course, there's no need for that. Uh, <laughs> but, we, but we do it anyway, everybody, just for your entertainment value. And um, that's why each episode is such a bite-sized morsel <laughs> for you to consume. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So let's see. Mary goes to bring tea uh, like she did before to this room for Giselle. But this time Giselle is still in there with her dead body. And Mary is very uh, distraught and comes running to tell Dr. Vance. But of course, you can't just run into the room and say, Giselle's been murdered. Giselle's been murdered. You have to say, Dr. Vance, I have something I need to tell you. Because I guess Mary doesn't want Elizabeth to hear because for one reason or another, she 
is worried about the mental state of Elizabeth. So, um, well, maybe she knows that Elizabeth has a heart condition and she doesn't want her to get too excited. Right, right. We're upset. Very conscientious of her. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I was very impressed. She comes into that room and she sees Giselle laying you know, half out of the bed, all slashed up. Right. And she has that breakfast tray. As soon as I saw that, I was like, that tray's history. Right. There's no way that tray is not going to. And she, I mean, she shakes, you hear the tea, the teacups and stuff kind of rattle, but she sets it down. She lands it on that credenza without breaking anything. Yep. And all of a sudden I was seeing her in a whole new light myself. She's a professional. Um, I mean, she's dealt, oh man. She's dealt she's, with this stuff before, obviously. Yeah. She's such a badass. She only had to do one movie. She probably went off to rule the world after this. <laughs> well, they go back to Giselle's room and here is a perfect opportunity for the story to go in a direction, but it doesn't. And that is it's in, in any other Jalo that we've covered. I feel as if they go back to the room and Giselle's body is gone. And, and then it starts the whole thing of, well, maybe Mary is losing her mind or maybe Mary is seeing things or maybe somebody's trying to make Mary go crazy. But none of that happens because the body is still there. Um, and Dr. Vance uh, says, um, you know, I need you to, to not tell anybody what you've seen here. And she's like, mm -hmm. are you crazy? There's a dead body here. Like, you know, we need to call the police. And he goes, I need to ask you to not call the police. And she says, well, you've got to give me a good reason. And he says, okay, I'm going to take you to another room and I'm going to tell you a story. So they go to the office, I guess, the library or what have you, where they will not be overheard. And we then have our flashback scenes. Um, and the flashback scenes, um, I think they were really well done. First of all, they're completely, like as far as the way that they look and feel, completely different than the rest of the movie. Um, yeah. I mean, there are times when the movie has light in it um, where there are scenes that are brighter than others. But for the most part, this movie is very drab and very gloomy. Um, but when we go to the, the flashback, it's sunny. Um, every character in the flashback is uh, warm looking, smiling, dressed well, groomed well. Um, and yeah, even their clothes are brighter. The clothes are brighter. Everything's brighter. And so it, it yep. looks like they filmed the flashback scenes in the summer. And yeah. the other scene, the rest of the film may be in October or November. Yeah, or there you go. That's yeah. a good point. And is this supposed to be another area of the same location, or is this supposed to be where Vance lives? This looks like a whole different place. Yeah. And story wise, it would be because he didn't buy the place, the what is the murder clinic until later. Right. After things here happen in the flashback. Right. So the first flashback there, in, they introduced the idea that uh, Vance and La Elizabeth were married, 
But Elizabeth has a sister named Laura who comes to visit them. And they have this kind of weird, like threesome kind of relationship. Like it's obviously not explicitly shown that they're having sex with each other, but um, Robert is constantly in these flashbacks, like uh, focusing all of his attention on Laura. And every time we see Elizabeth watching, she's watching with a smile on her face. Like you don't, yeah. you don't see her like being jealous or anything. And this guy's supposed to be a doctor. He's running around chasing this woman like, like they're ten year old kids, or maybe not even ten, maybe five or six year olds, right? Chasing each other around, laughing and smiling, and pushing her on the swing. And his wife, her sister, is just standing off to the side, like, "Oh, that's so nice," smiling and waving and. What else are you supposed to think? But it is what it looks like, and she's in on it? Or she's such a moron that she doesn't see what's happening maybe right in front of her own maybe, eyes. Yeah, maybe she just thinks it's very innocent. Like, you know. But, like, then they have this scene where they're playing cards, and they're all staring at each other and going back and forth and making googly eyes at each other. Um, <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. And that's actually the end of the first flashback. And so then we go back to the room where Vance and Mary are talking and Vance is like, um, the next thing that happened is my clinic was under construction and I was so excited about it. And I wanted to bring my wife and her sister to see the construction. Now, again, I have the same question as before the construction that we see now mm-hmm. where we ultimately have the accident. Is that the same? Is that supposed to be the same clinic where he's in now? Or see, I, the, I got the, one of the times through this movie, I got the impression that after this accident, the clinic never got built and he ended up going and working in this other clinic for the psychotic people. But well, I think he says that it was just he bought this old house and just kind of set up shop there. Okay. But this construction site that we're seeing where the accident happens, I don't think that ever got completed because of the scandal and the accusations okay. and trial and everything kind of sidetracked his career and Okay. Uh his reputation, maybe nobody in town wanted to do business with him after that anymore. Okay, good. So I'm not that that's what I thought too. So um, so the scene as it happens, you know, Laura and Robert are standing, uh, on one of these scaffolds and she falls and it looks kind of like he has his hand on her shoulder, but also the rope goes, uh, falls away and she falls down into this like trough of lime. I think they said it was. Yeah. And she's extremely badly burned. Um, and then even though she's wearing like 50 pounds of cloth, right? How many layers of clothes? I mean, I don't know. I've never jumped in a line pit. Well, myself, what about the guy who jumps into 
to pull her out. He doesn't get burned. Exactly. Dude, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, what about him? I hope you got your workman's comp shit paid up. <laughs> but considering what it does to her, on top of, like, you know, pepperoni pizzing all the skin <laughs> on her body, but somehow she still has blonde hair, enough to play D. Snyder at Halloween. Maybe it just grew back. But, I don't know. And it also made her legs shorter. <laughs> right. And this poor construction guy selflessly goes in there to pull her out. He's got to have lost a couple toes at least. Yeah, well, good for him. I mean, you know, he's yeah. he's a he's an upstanding he's man. The hero. Yeah. So, so they come back to the present moment, and Robert reveals that Laura lives on the third floor. She's been burned very badly, and. Although he was acquitted of any wrongdoing, um, his career uh, was never the same. And uh, in my notes at this point, I've written, I don't, I still don't think that Robert knows who the murderer is. Um, it's like he, the only thing he knows is that there is a murderer and he has mm-hmm. to continue to cover the tracks of whoever this murderer is, because if any um, attention is brought to the fact that people are getting murdered here. Um, they're going to look at him first because he already has a track record for being a criminal and he was acquitted. So that's why he's doing this. Okay. I'll agree with all that. But I think on top of not wanting to attract any attention because of his past experiences, I think he thinks it's Laura. And I think part of him covering it up is his sense of guilt about her situation. Okay. Because right. I think at some point somebody says uh her mind, her body or something like uh her body got sick, her uh, her body was injured and then her mind was. Right. So I think even though he knows he didn't push her and he wasn't you know, he wasn't actually guilty of trying to kill her. Uh I think he feels guilty about the entire accident and he understands as a psychologist that, you know, a young, beautiful woman, something like this happens to him. Of course, they're going to go crazy, but I got to get mine and that makes her upset. So she kills every side piece I bring in here. And as long as I don't show my wife, I don't know. <laughs> Is that too far off? You might be going a little bit too far, but you never know. I mean, one, you know, the motives, the secret motives of these characters are well hidden, partly because of the time period. You know, they weren't really allowed to talk about this kind of stuff at all. So, um, yeah, I can't relate from to somebody from 1950, much less 1870. Right. <laughs> so at this point, um, Ivan comes in. And tells them that Fred has escaped. And I think they've decided that, that Fred is the murderer. Although, like you said, Robert kind of thinks that it's Laura. Um, so they're, they're off to look for Fred to find out what's going on with him. And I guess, excuse me, I guess they tell... Uh, they, they say, okay, lock everybody down because we have an escaped murderer in the, in the house. We're going to go find him, make sure everybody's, uh, in their rooms. And, um, 
Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and Mm -hmm. they ask, let's see. Oh, I have in my, okay. In my notes, it says Elizabeth, uh, tries to get Mary to admit that, um, she's in love with Robert, but Mary doesn't really say anything. Mary remains professional and says, you know, is there something I can get for you? And Elizabeth says, can you get my shawl? It's getting cold. Um, and then Mary walks out the door to go get the shawl and sees a bloody hand hanging from the, the top of the doorway. And it turns out to be Fred, who I think is in the ra- well, it's He's in the rafters. Yeah, I guess. Well, no, I don't, maybe it's just like a little step-up extra storage. Because those rooms probably have really tall ceilings. Right. And she said uh, it's in the wardrobe or it's in the cloakroom or something like that. Basically, it's in the closet. But uh, Right. And it's not that she opens a door and the hand is hanging there. It drops. In front of her. Oh, okay. Like a Friday the 13th episode. Yeah. You know. So that makes me wonder if if he did kill himself. Was it just timing that when he finally expired and his hand loosened up was right when she was walking through? Or... And I don't know, they kind of show the full shot, so we don't see anybody up there. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense, because if you know who the killer is, that was not clearly not the person who who killed Fred, unless that person killed Fred a long time ago. But it's more likely that what Dr. Vance says is correct, in that Fred decided to kill himself, because... When he was being led off to the prison cell, he was like, would you please kill me or let me kill myself? So, Okay, so Fred escapes and somebody left, wait, somebody unlocked the cell door and somebody left a straight razor for me to find on my way out. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go up to the lady of the house's closet and kill myself there. Sounds perfectly plausible to me. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, the guy's nuts. Doesn't make so any who sense. knows? But if I was nuts, I'd try to be a little more logical about it, if that's possible. And I'd just say, oh, look, my door is open. Well, I don't care. Here's a razor slash. Right. And why go up the steps if you don't have to? Right. Right, right, right. Well, let's go upstairs and find extra steps in the damn closet to go up. But, okay. Yeah, I I don't know. I think this whole thing with Fred and his body showing up at this point, it just serves to kind of move the the story along. But if you start to to pull it apart and say, well, how did this happen? And what were the circumstances that led up to Fred being in this position? It doesn't really make sense. So, um, but I mean, the whole point is to convince either the viewer or Robert and possibly even Mary that 
the murderer is now dead and we can all kind of move on with our lives. But we of course know that that's not the case. So, right. Um, so the next scene, uh, all the servants are having dinner together and this is another one of these weird scenes. Like it kind of has a little bit of purpose, but it's also kind of throwaway. Um, Ivan comes in late and he says something about how, uh, aren't we friends anymore to Katie and Katie is mm-hmm. trying to cut some of the crusty bread, uh, but she can't do it. And he, uh, brandishes this switchblade, um, which I guess is supposed to just be, Hey, you know, don't forget there's another person in the movie who has a switchblade. Right. Remember we saw him in the very beginning with the razor blade. So now it's like, yeah. if you don't believe that Fred's the killer and we can't believe that because the movie is still happening. Uh, it didn't end. <laughs> uh, and now we, you know, our suspicions are going back to Ivan again. At least that's where they're pointing them. But at the same time, Mary, who says, you know, I'm really tired. Uh, I'm going to go, um, check the rooms and then I'm going to go to bed. So she leaves and heads over to the room where Giselle was killed and where Julie was killed. And she goes in and I think Sheena, Miss Sheena like follows her in. Mm -hmm. And so now you're like, well, why is Miss Sheena following her around? Maybe she's the one. So, um, she, go ahead. You're going to say something. I know. I was just going to say, yeah. Everybody at some point becomes a suspect. Yeah. And I'm not really sure. Why why did she go to the love suite? Well, she saw that like the door was like kind of going back and forth a little bit. It wasn't completely closed. Right. And I think that what she was supposed to be doing is checking the room. So she decided to go check that one. I guess. Right. And nobody would close a window since Jane jumped out of it. So she right. go in here and close it. <laughs> okay. So Mary is now told, go ahead, go to bed. Um, so Mary decides to go to bed, but as she's walking in and, and, you know, finishing up the rooms and turning off the lights and stuff, she goes into the room where Dr. Vance is sitting and she doesn't see him sitting there. She, tur- she blows out the candle and at this point, I think um, he declares his love for her. Um, mm-hmm. And she says, well, what about Elizabeth? And then at that point, he starts speaking in Italian, and I have no idea what he says. So oh, did you get that? Okay. Did you get that part? Uh, let's see. The first time I watched it, it was in Italian. No, it was in English. The second time I watched it was... In Italian with English subtitles, but I don't remember the subtitles disappearing. Uh, I didn't have the subtitles turned on. Let's see. Uh, It's right around. um... All right. So what's the last thing he says before it switches to Italian for you? I'm I'm trying to.
He says, forget her. How could I? And then right there he goes, something, something. So, okay. Okay. Every day, the accusations, suspicions, the grave just gets deeper. And I think that it means like the hole just keeps getting deeper. Right. After what happened to Laura, I cannot look at her anymore. A nightmare that torments me all these years. Only you can save me, Mary. Help me. Oh, okay. Sure. He says that to all the girls. <laughs> and then smoochy booches. And right. Then... Okay. That was the yeah. only part where they didn't have, um, where they didn't have English soundtrack. I don't know why, but suddenly Elizabeth is there and she's spying, she's spying on them. She catches them kissing and then she runs off and Robert goes after her. And, um, let's see, what do I have in my notes here? Okay. Um, now this was a cool scene or a cool little tidbit that I noticed. Um, Mary, at one point, this kind of dark figure walks into the office where we all we ultimately see that the guinea pig is alive and and the skin graft has taken but before that we don't know who this person is who's walking into the office yet we know it's we eventually see that it's mary but we don't see her yet and then we see a hand kind of like drape across this large assortment of blades and knives and cutting utensils on top of mm-hmm. a like a red velvet um, like cushion that they're on top of. And it made me think of um, the bird with the crystal plumage, like right away. Um, because that's, that's the same thing that the, all the knives and the black glove with the hand that goes across them in some sort of like fetishistic way with the, uh, with the red, you know, cushion underneath. And I was like, Oh, that's yeah. pretty cool. I never, uh, it looks like something that Argento redid either in bird or in deep red or in both. So, um, but ultimately we realized that it is Mary and that she has grabbed some sort of a scalpel off of the table. Um, but all of that has been kind of obscured by the fact that the Guinea pig is doing wonderfully. He has survived the surgery and the skin graft is taken. And so, um, I don't really know why we needed to know that, but, um, so now we come to the kind of culmination of all the things that are happening. We've got, um, all the servants walking around with torches, trying to find Elizabeth. Um, and they're all walking in a group. They're with all, their torches. they're all walking in a group. They didn't spread out to look in different places. They didn't spread. <laughs> unless, the, unless she's on the stairwell, you're not going to find her. You got 10 people. Well, maybe they decided, hey, look, you know, if we separate, somebody else is going to get killed. So let's all stay together. Okay. Well, that's good thinking in a scary movie, but you could at least pair off. (laughs) Now, in addition to them walking around, Vance is walking around. The hooded figure is walking around and Laura is walking around. We see her deformed face with the shroud. Yeah. Um, 
And at some point, uh, Machina comes up to Vance and says, hey, I I have something to tell you. And he goes, did you find Elizabeth? And he, she goes, no, <laughs> but I could tell you that the skin graft is taken. And he's like, oh, that's amazing. You know what that means? And she's, she, she says nothing. But basically what it means is nothing because, I mean... It goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. Because even if he was going to use the skin graft to make Laura look better, he doesn't leave with Laura. He leaves with Mary. But anyway. Well, it's because Laura's not leaveable. Well, plus, I think she dies. But anyway, spoilers. Um, (laughs) So Mary's laying in the bed, and um, the hooded figure comes in to Mary's bedroom. And let's see. Or somebody comes in. See, that's, They're still walking that, around with these torches, trying to find uh, Elizabeth. What were you going to say? Right. So that was, it totally confused me the first time I saw this. Everybody, I mean, Mary just got busted kissing uh, Vance right. by his wife, Elizabeth. Right. right. Elizabeth screams and runs off. Everybody's looking for her. Except Mary goes and gets a scalpel, bumps into Sheena. Oh, check out the guinea pig. Oh, my God, the graft, blah, blah, blah. And why is Mary back in bed laying in the dark? And isn't she afraid? Isn't she, you know, I think the second time I watched this, they show her laying in the bed. And then she purposely kind of rolls over and pulls the blanket a little tighter to kind of form a bundle. Right. And then the next time we see her, well, the next time they show the bed, there's that, uh, we see the same shape on the bed, but it's like she pulled a, uh, a little switcheroo on the killer. Right. And which is, again, she's awesome. She rules. And I think that that was her plan all along. I think when she left the dinner and said, I want to go to bed early, I think her plan was, I'm, I, I don't think that the killer has been apprehended. I don't think it was Fred. And um, I'm going to see if I can, you know, stage some sort of a sting to catch the killer. Huh. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe, maybe she only thought of that after she got caught kissing Robert, but. Well, I like that idea because she was so empathetic towards Fred. Right. If she just couldn't find it in herself to believe that Fred was a murderer, I mean, yeah, he like she said, you're not bad, you're just sick. Right. And so she was maybe, she got that scalpel thinking, I'll lay myself out here like bait, and I'm going to find the real killer. Exactly. That Plus, I've just pissed off the lady of the house, and she might come after me even if she's not the killer. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you know, I don't know if she... If she's figured out who it is, I think she's just putting herself in a position to to be the next victim. And, yeah. and so when the killer comes in, the killer stabs the pillow, but it isn't uh-huh. it isn't her anymore. She's hiding in the curtains and she says, uh, you know, don't move. I also have a weapon, whoever you are. And then as they begin to fight, another hooded figure turns around and says, hey. It's you. And she says, ah, um, yeah, it's Laura. It's Laura. But see the fact that Laura walks around 
with this shroud and this robe, this hooded robe on. And Mm -hmm. Elizabeth also does that. Elizabeth is trying to make it look like it's Laura who's doing this. You know, they both have this thing on. She's, she knows that Laura, like, I don't, I I think the only, I don't think anybody knew it was Elizabeth. I think that they all thought it was Laura. And I don't think Vance ever thought that it was, um, Fred, but I think that he just says that it's Fred to get Mary to, you know, to, to stop asking questions and, and to, to stop thinking about calling the police because now, Hey, at least, you know, the killer's dead. We don't have to do anything else. But, um, Elizabeth is the one who dresses up in the same outfit as Laura and goes around and murders people. So, um, now in this final scene, we have Laura confronting Elizabeth um, she says something about, I understood the part I didn't get with this revelation scene. You slipped up. Mm-hmm. I understood everything the other night when you cut yourself with that razor. I don't know what she's talking about. Do you know what she's talking about right there? Yeah. That night when, uh, I guess the previous night. When Elizabeth was walking down the hall, and then we saw that Laura was also walking down the hall, and we heard the scream, and then the cat lady screamed, and then they found Elizabeth laying on the ground. Oh, okay. Did she? And she had cut herself? I didn't realize that. Yeah. I think Elizabeth was following... Um, shit. I get all the names mixed <laughs> Laura. I think Laura was following Elizabeth. Right. Because, I don't know, maybe when Giselle went up there and fainted, and there was that scene where she gets down there and touches her face and then starts crying. Right. Maybe that was, a uh, besides feeling bad for herself and her own less than beautiful condition, maybe she was empathizing with these women who were getting killed. Right. Maybe she decided to try to put an end to it. And if that's true, or, you know, if we're following that half-assed theory <laughs> that I just made up, maybe she was following Elizabeth to see what she would do. And she saw Elizabeth go around the corner and kind of just half-assed, you know, slice her own neck and then pretend to be the victim. Right. Because that's what she says. She says, when you cut yourself with that razor. Right. Yeah, I didn't get that part, but I didn't notice that that's what had happened in the previous scene. Yeah, well, it's because everything's so damn dark. Yeah, right. We need a remastered Blu-ray, like, now. Well, and this, at least the version I'm watching, came from the Blu-ray. So, I mean, I I don't think they lightened it up. I think they just left it alone and just, you know, kept it the way it was. But Yeah. So then she says, uh, you're the murderer and I was your first victim. And then we see um, a quick flashback. Yeah. To flashback number three. Flashback number three. Elizabeth actually um, loosens the rope. And that's why um, Laura fell to her death. It had nothing to do with Vance. But um, the funny part was, at this point, in the English language soundtrack, she says, I never did that. I never did that. 
And <laughs> in the subtitles, it says, it's not true. It's not true. But I never did that. I never did that. It's much funnier. So you got to make sure you listen to the English language soundtrack. Cause she goes, I never did that. And, uh, yeah. then she turns and I guess she stabs Laura or she hits her or does something to create the fatal she blow. She slashes her right across the neck. Yeah. Okay. And then she turns around and leaves. I mean, if she was originally trying to kill Mary, Mary's still there. Right. I mean, she'll cut you a new one, too, because Mary's a badass. Right. But it's like, oh, my God, I just killed my sister, who she's probably resented forever. I mean, hell, she did release the rope so that she'd fall into the lime pit. Uh, So why not? But Go ahead and try to kill Mary too. But Elizabeth yeah. is Elizabeth is out of her mind. She's like, you know, yeah. At this true. point, she's kind of like having an episode where she, you know, she doesn't know what what's going on. So she just decides to like flee, you know, uh, instead of doing anything else. And Vance comes in to see what's going on, and Elizabeth actually runs around a corner. And up a flight of stairs. And then Vance comes in right after her. But he doesn't go up the stairs. He goes down another flight of stairs. So he doesn't know. You know, he didn't follow her directly up. And um, at this point, Elizabeth is going up to what I would presume is where the same space where Laura spent all of her time on this third floor. And uh, now she's up at the window and everybody is watching and Vance says, Elizabeth, no. And Elizabeth throws herself out of the three third story window and down to the courtyard below where she is almost dead. But before she completely dies, she um, confesses to everything. And um, she says, it wasn't you. It was me, Robert. I was the one. I was jealous of her, and I was the one who murdered her. And I was jealous of all the others, too. And I killed them all because they were so young and beautiful. And because uh, I didn't want to lose you to them, I couldn't live without you. And now that's it. She's dead. Wink. Uh, and now this isn't um, a typical Jalo ending because we actually have a little bit more to the story. Not much more, but a little bit more. Um, Elizabeth is dead. And what I think is funny about this scene is we see Machina, we see Ivan, we see Mary, and um, we go, you know, he stands up. And he's surrounded by all the servants with torches around the body. And he just walks away. <laughs> Basically like, yeah. yeah, go ahead and clean it up, guys. Um, I'm done here. They could have had an instant cremation right there. Right. <laughs> Save them some pickaxing in the cave. Exactly. Later. <laughs> so he walks off. And the last scene, um, there is a horse-drawn carriage in front of the castle or the villa and Vance comes out and he looks at, takes one long 
loving look at the at the villa and gets into his horse-drawn carriage and goes away and then all of a sudden Mary comes out um I guess looking for him and as the carriage passes her he stops it and goes over and escorts her into the carriage lovingly <laughs> because now yeah. that uh now that a Elizabeth is dead and he doesn't have the guilt that he used to have of what he did to Laura. He's free and clear, mm-hmm. and he can start a new life with Mary and maybe even start a new clinic. And that is it, ladies and gentlemen. The carriage rides off into the um, edge of the frame, and we see the end, or ende. Mm-hmm. I don't know what ende. ende. Yeah. And that's it. So, there you have it. The murder clinic. So, nobody ever finds out about what happened to Jane. Because everybody involved is gone or dead. Right. Uh, How did they get rid... What happened to Giselle? With her body? Did they... No idea. I guess... Yeah, because he said we can't report it because I don't need suspicion. So, did he bury her in the cave too? Or, I don't know. You could make a whole TV series out of this show. <laughs> you could have made it where, um, like, the bald guy, Walter, and I can pick on bald guys because I too shaved my head. But, sure, me too. What if he was like the kitchen help and they were having, uh, I don't know, surprise stew for the patients every week, right? <laughs> And that could go down a whole horrible thread there. And Mary, who's really the hero of the movie, I guess, if somebody has to be, sure. She ends up with this guy. She doesn't know half the stuff that he's done. He's not a great guy. Right. He's not as bad as it seemed at the beginning when we see him burying people and stuff. But... (laughs) So he's not the actual killer, but that doesn't make him a good guy. Right. He's kind of a philandering piece of shit, but. (laughs) So it just strikes me as funny that it's framed like a happy ending. And is it? Maybe not. Yeah, you could definitely pull apart the idea that it's a happy ending. For sure. Um, if you look, if you look into it enough, like you just said. Yeah. Well, we can assume that he was having an affair with Jane or Janie, right? Yeah, I think so. I think we should assume that. Okay. Yeah. And how perfect she can't even talk, right? Yeah, she's, that, yeah she is perfect. Better. Shouldn't have been killed. Yeah. She was awesome. <laughs> but, um... Okay, so he was having an affair with her. He was trying, or he was—he seemed very interested in getting with Giselle. And then later, he ends up with uh, Mary. It's like this guy can't uh, talk about a wandering eye. Yeah, <laughs> his eye pops out of the socket and bounces down the sidewalk. You know? Yeah, I mean, exactly. He's he he can't he can't stay focused on anything. 
related to, you know, who he wants to, to be, you know, infatuated with. Um, yeah. And, and, and his sister-in-law shows up and he starts chasing her around the yard. Like they're playing <laughs> kiss chase or I don't know, tag or something in, in the, and one thing I noticed about all four of those women, right? Janie, Giselle, Mary, and Laura. They were all blonde okay, to some degree. Right. I mean, Giselle was a little more brown than blonde, but there was blonde in there. And uh, what's her name? Elizabeth is a brunette. The scene where uh, she first confronts him when he comes back from... Uh, Bear well back from the Ipswich Woods with Giselle, right? And she says, "Why did you bring her here?" And he says, "Who?" Like he doesn't know who the hell she's talking about. <laughs> uh, what were you doing out there? And then he changes the subject, like you know that whole kind of macho bullshit. Like how dare you question? Right, me? right. What I gotta tell you what I'm doing every single day? Uh. Send her away before before she gets killed, right? Blah, blah, blah. And then she says, I already saved you before when we were in London. I lied for you. During that scene, there's like a three-quarter shot of the back of her head towards us as she's facing him. And there's a lamp right behind, like to the left of the screen. Right. You can see clear as day that she's wearing a blonde. I mean, she's a blonde wearing a brunette wig. Right. And it is exactly at the 35 minute mark, 35 minutes and zero seconds. Huh. And if he's chasing blondes, take off your damn wig, lady. Right. And if you don't want him chasing people around, how about sleep in the same bedroom? That might help a little bit. But... And if she does have a heart condition for real, <laughs> how's she running around killing all these people? <laughs> I, I the heart well the heart condition you know I I don't think that she could trick her husband into thinking that she had a heart condition when she didn't like he's a doctor so yeah maybe he was feeling up her wrong boob and thought that yeah. something was wrong no it's okay I'm a doctor and that's another thing if she has a heart condition okay whether you have a heart condition or not. Okay, if I'm like 22 years old and I'm chasing somebody across the grounds and slaughtering them at the fountain and then running back to the building and then, oh, shit, the bald kitchen guy or whatever and the dog are chasing me through the the laundry room, apparently. And they come into the room that I just entered. I'm not going to be sitting on the chair knitting, looking at them like, oh, hey, what's up? What are you doing here? How dare you get up? I'm going to be. <laughs> yeah, she's all collected and, and prim and she's proper. She's perfectly cool. She's sitting there. There's no sweat, no nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that, one was, but, that one was hard to swallow once you knew who the killer was. But. Yeah. Stuff like that makes these films just that much more fun <laughs> for me. As much as I you know, sound pissed, I'm, I'm not. I think it's kind of cool. Well, um,. The one thing that I should mention is that I believe that out of all, I have to double check this, out of all of the films that I have on the Jalo Score website, prior to 
the bird with the crystal plumage. I'm going to double check here. I'm looking, I'm looking. Hang on a second. Yep. This is the highest scoring film prior to the bird with the crystal plumage. <clears throat> it got a set. Wow. It got a 75 on the Jalo score. Jeez. Um, which if you look at blood and black lace, which we all consider to be, you know, quintessential blood and black lace only mm-hmm. got 64. Um, the possessed huh. that we did a few episodes ago got a 73, but um, the murder clinic got a 75. And I can tell you um, specifically that it got a lot of points in the first staples section where, yeah. you know, you have the Italian director, the hidden identity, black gloves, um, amateur detective, um, the pre-classic period, motivation, uh, psychological trauma or revenge and accidental death or suicide of the killer at the end that got 53 points right there. Um, and then we have a body count. We have a flashback revelation. We have a mistaken identity. When Fred is discovered, we have, uh, more than one killer or an accomplice. We have a bunch of suspects. Um, that's 17 points right there. And then, you know, there's a chase scene, that in the beginning, there's death from falling, there's pseudoscience, there's a psychologist, and there's spiral stairs. So uh, it, wow. it racks up 75 points. So, you know, one of the things about this film is that if they, you know, you could watch, uh, what is it, the film called Cold-Blooded Beast, which pretty much takes place in the same environment. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a house. It's a single location. There's a murderer on the loose and all the people that live there are there because they have some sort of psychological problem. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's when that film was made, it was made in, to, you know, to, to reflect modern times. I mean, even though it was 70, whatever, um, it was supposed to be current, whereas this one's a period piece. So my point is, this film is way more giallo than most people give it credit for, as you can see from the score. Um, And I think the reason why it uh, doesn't get as much credit for being a giallo as it should is simply because of the gothic nature of the film and how early in the, you know, in the, the life cycle of Jalo films, this appears and, you know, the period piece and the, you know, the costumes and everything else. When you think of Jalo, you think of, you know, the jet set, the swinging sixties, modernism, um, fashion, groovy music. And this movie didn't have any of that, but it still had everything it needed to be a good giallo. And I think it's probably mostly because Ernesto Gastaldi had something to do with writing the script. Um, Because like, that's just, you know, that's his style. So yeah. um, It's taken me uh, a while to warm up to this one. First couple of times I watched it, I wasn't that impressed, but the more I watch it, the more I like it. It does. It definitely seems like they put a lot of effort into making this movie. It wasn't a throw. It wasn't just a throw together kind of movie like the last couple that we looked at. 
Yeah, and the fact that they shot the exteriors at the villa, but they also shot the interiors at the villa. Right. Because if you look up that villa on uh, Google Images, you'll see mod or like current day pictures of the inside and those frescoes that are painted on the walls. Yeah. Like when um, when Sheena takes. Ah, shit. Just, Mary. Yeah, it's like the podcast is over. All the names get flushed <laughs> off my RAM. Um, takes Mary to the room that she's going to sleep in, and there's the tapestries and the frescoes painted on the walls. Right. Those things are still there. Right, right. So they didn't pull a death on the four poster where we're going to spend like an hour shooting these shots outside and then go to, you know, Chinichita and shoot the rest of the film on a studio right. set. And yeah, they did it for real. As far as the jolloness of it compared to uh, other stuff at the time, I mean, like you said, Gastaldi, he's like the, he's like the, the, I don't know, I don't want to say, uh, he's like the wellspring for most of the best jolly. Yeah. Depending, you know, no matter who directed him, it, you know, it all starts with the story. And the producer was, Luciano Martino. Right. And you know, we've said before, I thought Sergio Martino's films are kind of underrated because he's not Argento or Fulci. But everything that Sergio Martino did, Luciano Martino also did because they worked very closely together. So Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'd say this is like a double dose of you know hardcore Jalo elements coming in. And yeah, it, it kind of sucks that people would uh, not see it that way just because it's a gothic setting. Yeah, and I'm not, yeah. and I'm not really saying that that's the truth. I'm just saying that from my perspective, I didn't give it a fair enough shake the first time or so that I watched it to really watch it as if it were a giallo film in comparison to the other ones that, you know, we know that are classics. Right. Um, yeah. and I'm, I'm assuming that other people are probably doing that too, just because of the, the, the Gothic, you know, influence, mm-hmm. you know, but. Yeah. And you mentioned slaughter hotel or a uh, cold blooded beast saying, right. Film. Right. This also has elements of um, Eyes Without a Face. Have you seen that? No. No, what's Eyes Without a Face? I think it was a French film. But it had to do with a doctor who... I haven't seen it in such a long time. Uh, Either his wife or his girlfriend or his daughter or somebody gets uh, disfigured. Their, Their face gets burned up or scarred up or something. And he's trying to find a way to graft uh, somebody else's face onto theirs. So as far as the theme of a kind of somebody has a screw loose doctor who's trying to restore somebody's beauty by. uh, Because the next step after, you know, they're not going to put guinea pig skin on Laura. Right. Right. Exactly. It's kind of implied that if we can get the skin graft thing to work, we'll just wait till the next little 
cuckoo hoochie mama comes through here and, you know, turn you into her. Uh, so that whole aspect of this film, where the doctor is trying to restore a disfigured woman, uh, kind of comes from, well, I don't know if it comes directly from, but it it sounds a lot like uh, Eyes Without a Face. Well, and you bring up a good point. They didn't really expand on this idea in the murder clinic, but um, it seems logical that if Vance wants to fix Laura's face and skin, he's going to have to take the, the face and skin from someone mm-hmm. and obviously not a guinea pig, like you said. So um, maybe that's the other thing that they didn't really pursue, which was that he's not really unhappy that people are getting murdered because he'll have, you know, he'll have some, some uh, patients or some, some subjects ready for his skin grafting experiment some, now that some donors yeah now that he's passed the guinea pig test you know ah uh, see that's part of the you could make a whole tv series out of this <laughs> you could <laughs> you could have oh you could even uh kind of cross it with five dolls for the august moon right you could have if you have to bring it up to like the era of electricity and walk-in freezers and stuff right but he has affairs with these women, his crazy wife or his crazy sister-in-law, who's disfigured, kill them. He sticks them in the freezer. He's already far enough along that he's pretty sure the skin grafting thing is going to work. <laughs> he hangs the bodies up in the freezer. The bald guy comes in, skins them like Buffalo Bill, and cooks them and serves them to the patients while... They're keeping the skin set aside to do the skin graft. Dude, you can get 12 episodes out of that. Maybe he even goes to Venice and his victims are, he pulls them down into the canals and then bombs them. He finds a submerged monastery and holy shit, (laughs) here's six beautiful specimens just waiting for him. Or he just, he just, uh, Gondola jacks a whole bunch of tourists. <laughs> Pulls up in a cigarette boat and throws a lasso around the gondola end. And the guy with the striped shirt falls into the water and he just hauls their ass out to the Adriatic. <laughs> That'd be cool. That would. I'd watch the shit out of that. Right? Another yeah. another project for Matt. We, we're, li- yeah. we're lining him up. Remake of The Embalmer and a 12-part miniseries hybrid Murder clinic for five dollars for an August moon and the embalmer. Yeah. Would it still take place in Victorian? I guess it would, right? Well, you can't have a walk in. Well, I don't know. The freezer aspect is a little weird. Maybe if you put it in, uh, I don't know, in Canada somewhere, that could work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. But then it would lose points for not being in Italy. Yes. Uh, well, it would lose points for not being a feature film. I mean, I don't, you know. Oh, well, okay. Well. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, we're just watching these movies to think of ways to remake them and then uh, hand them off to somebody else. 
actually knows how to do that. Yeah. Yeah, we just we're just the idea guys. That's all. Yeah. Well, um, okay. Well that's it. That's uh that's the murder clinic. I like it. I think everybody should watch it. If you've listened to us talk about it for the last three hours and you still haven't watched it, you should have a pretty good idea by now whether you want to or not. And I think that uh Al and I both agree that uh it's worth watching. So Oh yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed it quite a bit. So what are you thinking for next? For next time, I have to throw up uh, some choices because initially I was thinking of this film called The Doll of Satan, uh, which is from 1969. So that's one option. And I know that we're also going to try to do a film called Psych Out for a Murder, Date for a Murder, Naked Violence, and there was one more. The Third Eye is on my list, but there was another one too. Oh, Death Knocks Twice. There you go. Death Knocks Twice. At Midnight in High Heels (laughs) with a cane. (laughs) So any of those, they're all kind of on the list to, to try to get within the next six episodes before we say, okay, you know, we're done with the 60s. So, well... It'd be cool to get some interaction and feedback from listeners. But on the other hand, that just makes it that much longer before we know what we're watching. Well, I can pose it to the group instantaneously after the release of this episode. And then, you know, we should have enough uh, votes by then. There's really only room for five more of these. So, ladies and gentlemen, that'll be it for us today. I feel like... um, did you ever see that uh, Bill O'Reilly outtake where he gets all crazy and starts yelling at the camera when he was... Uh, we'll do it live. Yeah, we'll do it live. Fuck it. We'll do it live. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> That's what it reminds me of. That's it for us today. And uh, we'll leave you with Sting. What, what is that? What do you, I, I don't know what that means. There's no words on it. To, pl- to play us <laughs> out. What does that mean, to play us out? Uh, anyway... Um, Yeah, next episode, guys, we are going to cover one of maybe five or six different Proto Jolly. I will post a poll on the Facebook groups, and you guys can pick which one you want to do next. And that's it. So I just wanted to remind everybody that, again, the movie that we covered today is on YouTube if you want to watch it there. If you want to send us an email to tell us how great we are or how terrible we are or anywhere in the middle, you can send emails to jalochowchow at gmail.com. You can go to our Facebook group, which is uh, the Jalo or Jalo Chow Chow podcast on Facebook. And my site is thejalloscore.com. And of course, as always, Matt Wall, our, what do we call him now? He's kind of like the honorary... Well, he's still our esteemed founder. Esteemed, exactly. Say. He's off. He left us behind. He said, I leave the podcast in good hands with you two, and maybe one day I'll be back. Hmm, that sounds familiar. <laughs> anyway, 
Uh, I hate mattwall.com. If you're interested in anything that Matt has going on, go over there and check it out. And that'll do it for us. So uh, thank you again, Al, for spending your evening with me. Thank you, Chris. It was fun. I really enjoyed this film and recommend everybody check it out if you get a chance. And that's it for me. Ciao, ciao. All right. Yeah. Until next time, everybody. Ciao, ciao. You did your ciao, ciao before I did my ciao, ciao. Yeah, I thought I'd change it up. That's pretty cool. I like that. Keep people on their toes. (laughs) 